do you think if this pandemic hadn't happened that you would have ever taken this long of a break from shows? Um, no. I mean, that would be like retirement. <laughs> Welcome to the Mr. Bill Podcast. I'm Anand Harsh, Editor-in-Chief of TheUns.com and Bill's Cryptocurrency Fortune Teller. We're still figuring out how to tokenize an Australian accent, but we're making some really good progress. Bill's guest this week is Hayden Kramer, a.k.a. Hero Bust. I've known this guy for eight years now, and he's one of the nicest people on the planet. He's been making cheeky dubstep and trap music and burst onto the scene from Atlanta on the backs of super high-energy, wild-ass productions. He mixes a sense of humor with some absolutely killer production skills, and the biggest DJs in the world are always dropping his tunes. He's also one of Bill's greatest foes at online chess. You'll have to listen to the interview to figure out if uh, they compare rankings and records. Speaking of ranking, thanks to everyone who's been rating the show and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast you use. It really helps people find the show. And join the Patreon as well to get early access to episodes, bonus content, and full video of every podcast. Sometimes hand gestures are a big part of the interviews. If you haven't already, go listen to Bill's latest two releases. One is Ride or Die featuring Mandy from the Mousetrap compilation We Are Friends Volume 10. The other is his remix of Vultures for Australian metal band Northlane. Two totally different vibes, uh, but both are masterpieces. Finally, head over to MrBillsTunes.com to sign up to become a hardcore Abletoneer. Bill just added a new feed of micro tutorials and other fun shit that pops into his mind, and you can check it all out on the HCA feed. Also, congrats to the winners of the Spectra Production Contest. You can hear all the submissions on the website. All right, enjoy Bill's chat with HeroBust. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Oh, this is my cat YouTube. Yeah. Nice. She's pretty feisty right now. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, she's sick. Oh my god, Jesus Christ. Yeah, she's she's pretty feisty. <laughs> nice. Fuck. All right. Cool, man. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's um good yeah, to sure. good to finally chat with you. I've, for sure. For yeah, sure. <clears throat> Put YouTube down here. Hopefully, she stays down there. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's been fun playing you in chess. It's uh, yeah, yeah, totally good experience. Um, who else? Who else are you playing? I'm actually playing uh, Tice from Noisia. Oh, and, um, okay. Who else am I playing? the The toughest opponent that I play is a friend of mine from. Uh, well, actually, I'm playing my teacher as well, who's like uh, rated like 2400. Um, ah, but that's okay. like I don't expect to win those games. They're actually sure. more just instructional, for uh, sure. <clears throat> and that sounds awesome. I, I've been thinking about getting a teacher uh, recently. Um, yeah, that sounds awesome. That sounds fun. Yeah, I mean, considering you've you've not got a teacher, you're really good. So, like, how how, do, how have you like gotten? 
to that level. Just YouTube. Like, YouTube, yeah. YouTube. I, yeah, I, I kind of do the same thing. Do you watch like um Eric, Eric Rosen videos and John Bartholomew and all that kind of stuff? I, I watch John Bartholomew. He's he's probably my favorite. Uh, some mm. of the other guys like Rosen and um what's his name Gotham. Mm. Like, like sometimes. And shit. Sometimes I feel like those guys like specialize in beating weaker players like they'll show you all the gambits and like the <laughs> the super like prickly lines that really don't work against like good good opponents but mm. it's like traps for lower rated people and i just like i'm not trying to learn like that yeah that's kind of true eric rosen's all about like using the stafford gambit to win your opponent's queen and shit like that <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah and he's always just on lee chess yeah playing like shitty opponents <clears throat> uh but yeah actually i have two teachers i have one who's a national master and another one who's a grandmaster and yeah wow. it's been i've been getting lessons from the grandmaster one for like maybe a month and i've been getting lessons from the national master for like six months wow that's awesome yeah it's been pretty cool um Basically, uh, the Grandmaster dude who I started getting lessons off a month, he showed me those two openings, the Perk and the London, and he was like, yeah. you should just play those two for now. And the reason why is because you can just play them against anything. Like, it doesn't yeah. matter what your opponent does. It's not going to mm -hmm. fuck the opening up for you. Whereas, like, if you play something super sharp, like the Sicilian, your opponent can play, like, you know, some random shit like the Dutch or the English or whatever, and then all of a sudden you're in a completely different opening. Yeah, you just you have to know so much more theory with those kinds of uh, openings. Yeah, exactly. The Sicilian is like specifically sharp. I feel like where you just need to know like yeah, thirty moves of deep theory to be able to really play it efficiently. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the the hardest cool. opponent that I regularly play, who isn't my teacher, is this guy from Oakland who I actually um, taught at Berkeley. Uh, he's like this Iranian dude who's rated about 1700 um, and I've been playing him for like six months in daily games and I still have not beat nice. him. So. <laughs> nice. That's I mean, that's awesome. That's awesome. Because like when they're people that, you know, personally, you can like analyze the game afterwards. And I feel like that's when you really learn. Like playing is just like the act of making the mistakes. Analysis is like the act of like learning, you know, from the mistakes. So that's sweet to actually have somebody that, you know. Mm, yeah totally yeah chess is also just such a like good thing to cure boredom i feel like it's like yeah. such a such a good thing to occupy your brain when you're not like you know doing other shit like making tunes yeah i mean to me they're the same it's like uh it's like a conquest you're never going to know everything there is to know about pr producing you know you're never going to know everything there is to know about chess like you can as a hobby, like there are some things you can pick up and then you've learned it and it's like, <laughs> all right, I'm done with it. But something like music or chess, it's like you can literally go forever. It can be like a lifetime thing. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of things like that. I feel that way about cooking as well. It's like you can yeah. just continuously yeah. never get like the best at it. You know, you're, there's always sure. going to be somebody who's like better than you at cooking one style of food. Even if you like are the best in the world at making croissants or something, it's like, someone's always going to be better at like cooking Asian for suits sure. or something. So have you been going crazy like in the kitchen this year or last year? Not like, not massively, <laughs> definitely crazier than I've gone in like the last, like yeah. the rest of my life. <laughs> but um, yeah, I've been baking a little bit, mostly croissants and cookies. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> That's awesome.
Yeah, and what else have I been making? I've been making shitloads of granola, actually. Oh, it's, okay. It's super That's easy cool. to make. I mean, it's just like oats and nuts and uh, like cardamom and c- cinnamon and shit like that, and then you just bake it with oil and maple syrup. And oh, okay. I didn't realize it wasn't tasty. raw. Uh, I mean, maybe it can be, but uh, I definitely bake mine. Cool. Yeah, I wonder nice. if granola is usually raw. Maybe it is. I don't know. I haven't been doing anything like that. I recently got an air fryer, so that's been cool. Dude, yeah, air um, fryers are so good. Yeah, I got an Instapot, so that's that's just like super easy. Um, but I'm not like I'm not like crazy uh, into cooking or food really at all. I pretty much eat for function. Really? Yep. Um, in that case, like, why don't you just drink Soylent or something? I do. Yeah, Soylent's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah i recently um like try i i, I love like I'm, I'm a big fan of soylent too mostly because um not because i like like to just eat for function or whatever but mostly because like i hate wasting time yeah and totally i'm i'm really bad at like being super engrossed in something whether it be like chess learning or whether it be like you know music making like i get super deep into a thing and then i'm like fuck i don't want to stop for like an hour to make food yeah. So, Dude, in I mean, those cases, all a lot, of, a lot of successful people are like that. Like they, all their focus is reserved for like one or two things in their life, and everything else is simplified, <clears> so <throat> they don't have to, you know, like like fashion designers who just wear all black every day, like the same <laughs> shit every day. You know, they're not focused on anything else, just what they're creating, curating, whatever. Really, who's yeah. a fashion designer who just wears all black? probably a lot of them but um i used to watch um it's like one of the like the contests like project runway uh so they have a bunch of designers they're competing whatever (laughs) but michael kors literally wears the same shit every day it's like a black blazer with a black tee and black jeans Mm -hmm. and that's it like he wakes up it's just a row of that in (laughs) his closet and he just he's not thinking about it you know um so yeah, I guess I kind of eat like that. Mm, yeah, true. Yeah, I guess I'm kind of similar in that way. Like I just I wear all black mostly because um, it kind of just goes with any mood. I feel like it is also easier. <laughs> yeah, like if you're yeah. not like really good at styling shit, it's just easy. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, going back to Soylent, um, recently <laughs> I like went to Amazon and I couldn't find Soylent on there. They were like sold out or something. Um, so I got Huel instead and it's fucking trash, dude. It's It's, what, what is it made of? I don't know, but it's like, uh, it's not soy, right? I don't know. I should Google it. I'm guessing like hemp, hemp fuel or something. Yeah. It's made from oats, rice protein, pea protein, sunflower, flaxseed, coconut oil, and a bunch of vitamins and minerals. And then it's uh, sweetened with uh, sucralose, maltodextrin, and xylitol. Okay. Yeah. That doesn't sound, uh, it sounds like a little bit more intervention, you know, with Mm. like the sugar alcohols and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's they brand it as like a uh, like a nutritionally complete food or whatever the fuck. But I mean, yeah, I think Soylent is kind of similar. Soylent was made by an engineer. I like right. that it's got a version number 
It's up to like version <laughs> yeah, point yeah. zero nine or whatever. Soil and ingredients. What's in that shit? Oh yeah, here we go. <clears throat> yeah, it's like soy protein, canola oil, also maltodextrin, uh, food starch, potassium. Yeah, it's basically just like all the shit you actually need, but not the whole foods that contain it. So instead right. of like having, you know, uh, milk or whatever, instead it just straight up has um, like magnesium and potassium and all that shit. Right. <clears throat> pretty, pretty clever. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, I think I, re I read an article when it first came out where the engineer who made Soylent just thought that eating wasn't efficient enough. And he was like, why do we do this? It's so inefficient. We should... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that like engineers are like in like coders, programmers, whatever. Like they live kind of similarly to how we do. Like they're at a desk looking at a screen, and and the work. Have, have you done any coding at any point? Uh, I feel like no, you probably but my, have. my girlfriend is a programmer, and okay, yeah, I, I live with like you know, around tons of programmers for sure, for sure. Well, it's like it's a super similar experience to like producing in the sense that like you just kind of go into a trance. And you come out of it and it's like eight hours later, you mm. know. Do you still go into those trances a lot with music and, and stuff? Every day, every day. Really? Like in my typical day, like especially when I think about like what I end up <laughs> eating, I'll eat breakfast and then I'll sit down. And if I'm like, if I'm writing something I'm stoked on, like my wife gets home from work at like eight and I'm like, fuck, I didn't eat, you know since breakfast i didn't move since breakfast so that still happens oh. all the time wow crazy yeah I, I for some reason don't have that experience as much as i used to when like back in the day i would have that experience more where i would be just like making music and like super into a thing and then i'd hear my dad get up in the morning and start coughing and i'd be like oh shit it's 6 a.m <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly um that was like when i was still living at home with my parents and stuff but um I haven't had that experience in a while. Usually now it's like I'm really, I feel like I'm more balanced than I used to be. Like I, I used sure. to be super bad at just, I just had music and like that's all I was doing and, and I would just be mega into that. But now it's kind of like I, um, I'm able to be like, all right, I'm going to go like for a bike ride and do some exercise and then I'm going to like, you know, spend an hour doing chess and then I'm going to like make some food and now I'll write music for, for sure. like an hour and... <laughs> I, I've definitely gotten to those points where I did have more like life balance, but my music I didn't think was as good. Hmm. To be perfectly honest, I just didn't think it was as good. And to me, it's like it's that important to me where I'm like, yeah, fine, I'll just go back to that. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I mean, if if you feel like um, yeah, if, if it's worth those sacrifices, I feel that way about mountain biking. Um, <clears throat> like oh, I know well, yeah. it's just. Yeah, I'm super into it. I, I know that it's like inevitable that I'm gonna like break a bone. It's just the risk you take with mountain biking, basically. But it's yeah. it's w worth it to me because it's <clears throat> it's so fun. It's objectively a bad idea. Yeah, mountain it's biking. A, yeah, like you, when you start mountain biking, idea. your micro morts just go way up. Um, so like a micro mort is a like a one. I think it's one in a million chance that you will die. What is it like? Um, yeah, a micromort is a unit of risk defined as a one in a million chance of death. So <clears throat> everyone incurs a certain amount of micromorts by like random activities, you know, like... Who's, a, who, who like came up with this unit? 
Is it like a insurance company or something? <clears throat> Probably. <laughs> like, who, who uses it? You know what I mean? Like, I've, I've actually never heard that. Uh, the micromalt concept was introduced by Ronald A. Howard, who pioneered the modern practice of decision analysis. Okay. Yeah. Like risk, risk analysis. It's kind of similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, huh, interesting. Yeah. But anyway, so um, I know when you start mountain biking, your micromorts just go up a ton. Uh, but yeah, also like your fun units go up a ton too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure. So yeah, it kind of makes it worth it. <clears throat> Um, yeah, what are, are they actually real decks behind you, or is that also just a part of the? That image? there are there are real decks behind me, but you cannot see them. That's that's just part of the image that I just grabbed before we came on. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, it's sick. Um, have you been so so mainly your days like through quarantine have consisted of making music? Yeah, pretty much every day I'm making music. Um, I try to get a workout in pretty much every day. Uh, halfway through last year, I uh, I got a basketball hoop for my backyard. So um, kind of got back into that because actually in February of, or March of last year, all the rims of public courts were taken down. Like then uh. they're still down. Hmm. Like the entire state has no jumper whatsoever. It's hmm. it's crazy. So. Hmm. They're like, we can't trust um, it. These chads, they're going to come out. They're going to hang exactly. on both sides of the thing and blow in each other's face. <laughs> <laughs> like, we've got to well, take yeah. them down. <laughs> yeah, people, people would go play. But it, yeah. it's, it's kind of crazy because, like, bars and clubs are open in Georgia. Um, Georgia's obviously just, you know, all fucked up. But for whatever reason, the, like, public parks and uh, basketball <clears throat> courts they were sticklers about but hmm. so i have that those three things walking my dog you know hanging out with uh neighbors cool pretty much it sick yeah that sounds pretty fun yeah i haven't been hanging out with neighbors so much basically like what i'm doing is i'm trying to stick with uh just a pod of people who don't mm -hmm. interact with people outside of that pod so right. essentially it's just like me living in this household by myself and then my girlfriend's household of 10 people and I just like go and hang out with them and they don't interact with anyone else outside of the for sure. house except for me. And It's definitely more limiting in like a, a denser city like San Francisco. Like I, I live in Atlanta and like I live in a house. My neighbor's in a house. You know, everybody here is in a house with like land and like a backyard. So we, we pretty much exclusively hang out outside. So mm. it'll be like a bonfire situation where everyone is distance and wearing masks and all that kind of stuff nice yeah it sounds pretty chill yeah <coughs> it's been good yeah gotta watch out for this new strain that's going around though the yeah the uk strain i mean or whatever. yeah it sucks have you heard of the subreddit leopards ate my face nope so uh it's this like political subreddit and it stems from this meme of uh, some lady who was like, oh, you know, when I voted for the leopards ate my face party, I didn't think they would eat my face, you know? And then it's basically <laughs> like a bunch of political memes about like 
Republicans who voted for Republicans and then were like, how the hell could they do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, there's this one specifically funny one where some, like, senator or some, like, upper dude from the UK government um, had a tweet where he was like, oh, it's not, like, racist if we call, like, food made in China Chinese food or Indian food made in India Indian food. So why is it racist if we call it the China virus? And then there was, like, another tweet from him, like, a few months later. Um, I'll remind you again at this point that this is, like, a senator or whatever from the UK, like, a, yeah. it's high, high up in the government there. And he had another tweet <clears throat> from, like, two months later saying, like, just because... Uh, this UK strain, uh, this <laughs> virus of the UK strain was like found in the UK first. Doesn't mean it was originated here. So like, stop calling it the UK virus, <laughs> right? Who cares? Who cares? Yeah. Uh, now that Trump is out of office, I've been like kind of finding some of his tweets like funny again. Um, like like old archived ones. Yeah. Can I read you one? <laughs> Please. <laughs> I'll try and find it. I, I I never want to read it like <clears throat> not directly word for word because it's just the best worded thing. Um, so you've got to imagine it, uh, I think, as if like this is some kid on YouTube who's just shit posting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> all right, this is the tweet. He said, "As I have strong, I as I have stated strongly before, and just to reiterate." If Turkey does anything that I, in my great and unmatched wisdom, consider to be off limits, I will totally destroy and obliterate the economy of Turkey. I've done this before. <laughs> yeah, that's terrifying, man. That, that guy was really our president. Yeah. And you insane. see now, now he's like started his own like office of, of Donald Trump and it's like made to look all presidential and shit. Have you seen that? <clears throat> Wait, what? He's, I guess they're trying to like retain his base, you know? Uh, so he, they like rolled out this like very like presidential kind of government looking uh, announcement that was like, it was announcing like the office of President Trump. It's probably some something to like subscribe to or <laughs> give us your email address or something like that. Oh, because you got, like, um, deplatformed from everything. Right. Yeah, exactly. So he's just trying to keep his his grip. Did you see the uh, the, the Four Seasons thing that Trump oh, yeah. did? Oh, yeah. That was so funny. He's like, Amazing. I'll be holding a conference later at Four Seasons, and it's just, like, the most ghetto, like, landscaping place. <laughs> it's the weirdest shit ever. Yeah. How is, um, how is, like, the the Georgia energy around the election times? Um, well, Georgia actually was obviously like, it was a big deal here because, you know, we we went blue and then we we flipped the Senate um, later. So uh, ads were everywhere, like I've never seen. Um, but uh, in a weird way, it was like, you already knew where everybody stood because like, masks and shit and quarantining and social distance they all kind of became politicized so george has been open like was one of the first states to open like like kind of like similar to how like everybody makes fun of florida like they mm -hmm. should be making fun of georgia too like 
if I walk, if I'm, I'm pretty close to downtown, if I walk down there, there's half the people here are just out eating at restaurants, like drinking at bars, like packed clubs, all that. Um, and uh, they know who you are because you're wearing a mask. You know who they are because they're not. Um, so you kind of already knew where everybody stood, you know, even before it got down to like really crunch time of like the elections and stuff. So you think, uh, like, just based on what what you saw, it was just like a fifty fifty split of, of yeah, uh, it's yeah, it's. I mean, like from the vote, it was like literally, you know, very close to fifty fifty. Like we had to have a Senate runoff because that's how close it was. <coughs> um, but Stacey Abrams, I'm not sure if you if that name rings a bell for you, but she base she ran for um, what was it? She she lost to like Kemp, uh, and she got she got cheated via like voter suppression. Uh, so for the presidential race and for the Senate race, she decided her conquest was going to be like combating voter suppression and like registering new black voters. Um, she's an African American woman, uh, and she crushed it. She like single handedly her programs registered like. I don't know, like 800,000 new black voters who were voting for the first time. And like she was that whole movement was like a huge part of uh, of Georgia going blue and then flipping the Senate. Um, so, yeah, she's awesome. Nice. That sounds sick. <clears throat> yeah, man, that was a crazy time. I'm glad that uh, that Trump is not president anymore. And I'm glad that he may never be able to run again, which is really cool. Yeah, we'll see. I I was actually I was talking to my mom about this because like before he was officially out, like a lot of people were talking about like, oh, for unity's sake, like do you do you kind of let him off the hook, you know, for everything and then the insurrection or or do you, you know, hold him accountable and, you know, send a message to future politicians <clears throat> that you can't can't be doing shit like this. And uh my mom, I knew she had lived through like the Nixon shit when Truman, you know, gave him his pardon or whatever, they made that deal. And, and I was like, what was the nation like? Like, what was the allocation? And she said it was like 75, 25. And, uh, and she was, she was glad that they pardoned him. And this time it was, fi it's 50, 50, which is like way worse. You know, mm -hmm. it's like perfectly even split. Um, yeah, but she was still like, fuck it, you know, throw him in jail. Yeah, I definitely don't think he should be pardoned um, just after all the shit he's done. I think it's probably worse yeah. than Nixon, right? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I didn't live through it, but that that's that's how it feels to me. It it feels like he himself like was a stress test for like what you can get away with, you know, as a leader in America, as a representative in America and like if like people thought they were bold before now it's just like uh fuck we can get away with anything you know so if, if there's if there's no accountability after all that it's like fuck it off to the races mm. <clears throat> yeah yes crazy shit <laughs> yeah i can't actually vote here so i don't really have like a oh, yeah a say um unfortunately but yeah this watching the whole thing was fucking crazy Especially here in San Francisco. I mean, like, here is just such a blue area. For sure. I feel like that's 
very small amount of people in San Francisco who voted red. What was it like? What was it like over there um, after Trump got was getting banned and kind of half of America was was trying to spin the whole thing and like direct the focus on like censorship and stuff like that? Were people taking that narrative seriously and like? No, not here. I mean, I think people here were just like. Basically, like, if you can imagine uh, the, like, logical left-leaning viewpoint on pretty much any issue, right. like, that's right. what it is always here. Like, no one's right. ever like, well, oh, yeah, it could I, potentially I know be where, this other thing. I know, I know where they stand politically, but like, <laughs> but, like, they're talking about censorship, you know, by big tech, right? And, like, that's where you live. Like, those are the the tech people so i didn't know if they yeah no most people you know, like i think here who work in tech kind of agree that tech has maybe too much power and i mean most people who here who work in tech espouse the idea that they think tech is in a bubble you know they, they just think that um it's not possible for for tech salaries to just stay where they are and all of that kind of stuff it's just sure. that yeah we're in like a, a time right now where the entire world is just controlled basically by Google and Facebook and Apple. Um, and these are like where all my friends work basically. And they're like, at some point, like there's, there's going to be some legislation there that, that takes away a lot of the power from these companies or starts taxing sure. them way higher or, you know, something like that. Um, yeah. Cause Europe's been a lot better about that. Right. Like they don't like, they have like <clears throat> big tech, you know, companies, but they've, they've been better about not letting them get so, so big. <laughs> Right. But I mean, like, think about that in America. Like, imagine if the government um, goes like, all right, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Facebook, uh, you're all getting like massively taxed and like, fuck you. And then these entrepreneurial <laughs> guys at the top who are just money making machines are just yeah. going to be like, well, I'm just going to, you know, fuck you. We're not going to make computers. We're not going to make email anymore. We'll try and run your government now. Right. <laughs> They're going to be like, oh, shit. Actually, we used all that stuff to like operate yeah, the country. For sure. Um. I mean, it's probably not going to happen, but, you know. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure think, there's more of a middle ground, but I see Yeah, what and I'm saying. sure, like, you know, the government is you know, somewhat thinking about that as well. They're like, we need big tech around because, yeah. you know, it's kind of like the cornerstone of society and all that stuff. Of but course. At the same time, yeah, it's like letting That's, it get so big as a problem. I, I wonder that, too, like, from, like, a, from the standpoint of, like, the global economy, is it worth it? to let our tech giants just be fucking massive monopolies just for the sake of dominating like the global economy. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know shit about this. Um, like you but, think, it, uh, is it good for tech to get like, so big just so America's economy is bigger than the rest of the world's? Well, yeah, like a tech giant from, you know, like Korea or China could end up taking more global market share if they don't if they if they like enable you know their monopolies or whatever and they get massive um you see like what i'm say, saying yeah like say they didn't tax like, hallway or something and like exactly massively yeah. taxed iphones or something yeah. and then all and of they, a sudden hallway is like the biggest thing right exactly i don't know um yeah i mean i'm sure there's like that's a thing that they think about definitely um where you know yeah uh, the government sort of also gets some positivity out of tech being so big here because it yeah it takes a lot of global market share for sure. But yeah, most like I said, most people here in tech definitely agree 
with what what you're saying that yeah they should be taxed and uh, it shouldn't be that big and they all think it's a bubble and that it's not going to last but yeah <clears throat> are you are you like into like crypto and stuff like that uh, speaking no, of bubbles i mean i i think it's i don't know are, are you or no but like in the past 48 hours i just been i just decided you know what i have all this fucking time like let's get into it i want to i want to like learn you know everything there is to know about this mm-hmm. um and uh yeah i don't know just speaking of bubbles i just oh that's the biggest serious yeah um yeah hold on i i found this like tweet thread the other day um that just explains perfectly how i feel about yeah uh, yeah i saw it i saw it you tweeted it the other day yeah, 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 and that—that's like exactly how I feel about it. It's essentially like the—I think it's the biggest Ponzi scheme that's like ever existed. Yeah, and essentially like what people are doing for the most part. Like I—I I don't disagree that there's like good technology behind this that could actually solve a problem of like centralized currency and all that sort of stuff. But yeah. um, the way that I mainly <clears throat> see it is like people aren't using it for that reason, right? Like people are right. not buying Bitcoin so they can like evade banks because at the same time that they're buying Bitcoin. They they all have credit cards and they all have bank yeah. accounts, so they don't give a shit about not being seen by the government. Like, like I mean, if they did, they wouldn't have bank accounts, right? Right. Um. Uh. But you need a bank account in this day and age, so it's like there's no evading it right now, anyway. But uh, so the people who are buying it now, they're buying it to just find a bigger fool to buy buy of it course. off them for more money, yeah. right? And that's yeah. exactly what a pyramid scheme is. Yeah, like by definition, more people will lose than will gain, you know. Yeah, it's um, what's uh, what's his name? That really rich old guy. Uh, <laughs> Take your pick. There's a certain guy. It's not Richard Murdoch. It's um, ah, oh, fuck. What's his name? I don't know. He's like this really old, like rich investor guy. He's huge. Um, <clears throat> his name is like on the tip of my tongue. Fuck. It doesn't matter. Anyway, like he said, um, if everyone in the world started with like one cent and then every day everyone on the uh, planet like flipped a coin and whoever like picked the right side of the coin got all the other side of the world's like one cent and then that just kept happening every day, essentially you would end up eventually with like a few people having just all of the cents and tons of like, you know, the wealth would just redistribute the same way that it kind of does already. Right. Uh, and and he said that's just essentially the way the world is working. And I feel like that's especially true of Bitcoin. Right. It's essentially well, to, just a- to some extent, I think it's uh, it's predatory, right? Because it's like if you don't, it's a greater, it's a greater fool's kind of uh, scheme, you know. But if you if you don't know who the fool is, it's you. You know what I mean? Like if you don't if you don't know everything there is to know about this, if you don't know how to take advantage of somebody else's ignorance, you're probably getting taken <laughs> advantage of. And so I, I see all these tweets all the time where it's like, oh, it hit forty thousand. Like who else is buying? Everybody buy this, <laughs> this shit. It's awesome. And I'm like, you're like you you look like one of the losers right now. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think uh, a lot of the people uh, on that thread that I tweeted were like kind of angry. Because um, they're like, no, nah, man, you just don't understand. Like, this yeah. is not what you think it is. Well, in, in the meantime, there are, there are plenty of people who can get lucky and make and make some money. You know what I mean? And they'll feel validated and they'll feel like, you know, there is, you know, um, 
some weight to it, but um, yeah, I don't know. In, until it's actually being used, until the currency is like really, like actually like functional, you know, uh, I don't I don't see it creating any value. So it's just all it's all demand. It's all uh, like people just convincing you to buy it because they already own it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's an investment, right? Like you're invest. Essentially, most people are investing in it, so they hope it goes up in value and they can make some quick cash. Um, but imagine if you say like bought a house, right? And then somebody like came and started telling you like, oh, this is going to devalue for sure. Like this, this housing market is in a bubble. Like you're going to probably argue with that person and be like, no, nah, man, like I did some research, like I'm pretty yeah, sure it's course. not. And like, I'm pretty sure this is like going to go up in value. I, and you're trying to like convince yourself that it was a good investment. Um, and yeah. I think that's what all these people are doing in Bitcoin. They, they've just totally, yeah, they've just invested a ton. So they don't want it to be bad. And they, I think, see somebody, you know, like me tweeting something like that as, uh, just devaluing it by a little bit. And if enough people do that, it's going to devalue it by a lot and that's going to ruin their investment. So I think that's I why think they... the I think you're overestimating the people that you're talking about. I don't think they're thinking about that at all. Yeah, they're really? probably just like, I'm going to make cash. You're just, you're just, you're a hater, you know? Yeah. Maybe they're just like, I'm going to have a Lambo. You, you watch. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I like all the Lambo memes. Like yeah, said, there would yeah. be Lambos. <laughs> this was especially funny when um when Bitcoin crashed after it hit like twenty grand last year or the year before, and then there's just tons of memes coming out of like you know disheveled people just being like, "You said there would be Lambos." <laughs> have Have you seen the like the Nifty, uh, like the Nifty? It's like it's like a, a marketplace for digital art that's on the blockchain. No. Oh, wait. This, was that the thing that um Jake posted in that thread? Kill the um, noise. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I looked so, into it for a sec, but I couldn't understand it. Basically, like you know how like like physical art, right? Like a Banksy will get bought, and then as Banksy goes on to become famous, like the art appreciates, and like collectors trade, and it can appreciate, depreciate, whatever. Um, that that has never been a possibility for like digital art. You know what I mean? Like you make a JPEG, anyone can just download it, post it on their Twitter, put it on t-shirt, sell a t-shirt, whatever, until you send them a season assist, whatever. Um, but this is like the first attempt at making a marketplace where the, there's like a master of the, of the art piece and people are buying like, the the rights to it and and it's and every transaction is tracked by the blockchain so um as the artist you could say i'll i'll sell it to you for x but then i get 10 percent of every sale after that as it you know as it exchange as exchanges hands over and over and over again but also just it's it's helping digital art getting taken more seriously in general like uh one of the guys who used to do a lot of graphic stuff for me um you know wasn't making crazy money. Like you don't make crazy money doing uh, like freelance stuff, you know, for EDM artists. But um, since this has popped off, he's like crushing it, and his art is like, uh, like it's like it's revered now because it's just through a, a new lens. Interesting. And how does that still stop people from you know just chucking these JPEGs up on the pirate bay or something? I have no idea. I have no clue. This is the thing. I mean, like, there was something a while ago. <laughs> like, 
people always think that the blockchain is just the solution for everything, especially in San Francisco. And there was a thing a while ago that was like, we're going to put like um, STD tests on the blockchain. So it's kind of like if you're if you're going to have like sex with someone, you can just check the blockchain and just like know if they have an STD. And it's like, yeah, but this requires literally everybody on the planet taking an STD test and then uploading their results to the blockchain. And it takes them doing that frequently for it to be yeah. of any use. Like this right. will never work. Yeah, that's a terrible, that's a, a bad application. But there there are good ones like... Um, uh like uh defi like decentral decentralized finance like if you if when you when you try to like uh you know borrow money you're you're dealing with a bank and all that shit and with with crypto you can really easily have like decentralized finance where you're lending and borrowing to other people and it's like it's peer-to-peer via the blockchain but there's no you know intermediary or anything like that um <clears throat> yeah, for Smart, that, it smarter makes, people than me are figuring this out. Yeah, yeah, it definitely makes sense. Um, but I, yeah, again, it's like going to take everyone adopting it, and it's going to take better networks than currently exist for it to to make any sense. You know, like everyone was saying uh, with Bitcoin, they're like, yeah, just wait until Lightning comes out. Like that's going to be so much better, and it's going to take over everything. And it's like even still with yeah. Lightning. Um, you see people, they're like, all right, I'm going to send a transaction. Watch this. And then they like hit go and it's like, all right, waiting, 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 waiting. Right. It's like a good 20 seconds. And they're like, see, <laughs> it just happened. It's like, yeah, but, you know, I can go take my fucking Apple Watch down to the convenience store, touch it to a thing and it's instant. You know, For like, sure. Until For Bitcoin sure. gets to that level of technology. Yeah, and then they argue like, yeah, well, we have like, the best engineers ever working on this. It's like, well, obviously not, because I mean, Apple's got better technology, so like, <laughs> they probably have better engineers. It seems like. <clears throat> yeah, um, I don't. Or I know. guess maybe it's not Apple's technology. It's just like the general EFT technology at large, which has just been developed for a lot longer, I guess. <clears throat> yeah. But I don't so understand what? why Bitcoin is so slow. Like it, I don't understand the tech super well. Uh, I think I think for it to be faster, it costs more. Like it costs more for yeah to have a higher speed, and most most people just prefer like lower transaction costs. I think Mm. this is honestly this is like if people are gonna watch this, like people that really know about crypto, they're just gonna be face palming the whole time because I don't really know what I'm talking about. It sounds like you don't either. Yeah, I don't for sure. I mean, I understand enough to know that it's dumb. <laughs> or I like to know that like yeah. Bitcoin is at least dumb and just this like giantly inflated thing. Yeah, but you know, I don't I don't think um I mean, I think they a, a lot of the people who are investing it's not that they don't know that. They just think they can game that situation. Yeah, you yeah, know, like exactly. sure. It's like that's and that's fine. Like, yeah, you're not you're not an idiot if if that's where you're coming from. You're just kind of comfortable with uh, more risk. Yeah, I mean, I have friends as well who um, are not necessarily trying to game the situation. Like one of the guys who commented on my thread, who's um, a good friend of mine, Sticky Buds. He is not necessarily trying to game uh, the Bitcoin system. He's just investing in literally everything because he is you know, hedging his bets on society, just getting wrecked at some point. He's, he's so like he's, a, a great reset guy. 
Yeah, exactly. He's like, eventually, at some point, society's just going to be fucked. So he's like, I'm hedging my bets on on that happening. So he's got like Bitcoin, he's got gold, he's got like silver, he's got like palladium, yeah. like all sorts of like precious metals and shit and like all sorts of currencies and stuff. Because he just thinks like at some point, fiat and society is going to gonna be fucked and you're going to need like, you know, some form of something to operate. So Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that kind of swirling uh those kinds of ideas recently mainly from like uh kind of like the q anon sphere yeah do you know squanto of course yeah he's a he's a q anoner yep yep <laughs> he's got the most interesting discord server i go in there I, sometimes i don't i don't want to know honestly yeah it's 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 a fun time though. <laughs> yeah, how do you feel about all the QAnon and Pizzagate stuff and the like? Ep what? How do you feel about the Epstein thing? Um, I mean, how else is there to feel like if that's if that's what was happening? That's you know awful. Um, but I think to me, what's interesting about it is like, like the the people who subscribe to the people who are attracted to these kinds of uh ideas are like uh, it's like it's like the same the same kids who are into like astrology or or like crystals or like you know sacred geometry or you know they they clearly have an affinity for um like believing in stuff you know and so uh like conspiracies naturally appeal to them you know so mm. you have these kind of like new age hippie type people who who historically have always been very you know very liberal and very like compassionate empathetic people um but but this time they're indulging in something that's like causing kind of a lot of harm you know um is the way i see it at least mm. Yeah, I mean, the the side of the Epstein thing, I mean, obviously it's like a fucked up situation, but I I do think that story makes like, uh, like that's one of the conspiracies I think that is actually not like bullshit. The fact sure. that he like killed himself, right? It's just the story is too... Totally. Too weird. I mean, you can, you can like, never blanket every like conspiracy and be like, they're all, you know, bullshit. Like, I'm, I'm not saying that. Um, but there's clearly a group of people that just, they can't help themselves when they, they, they want to believe in the ancient aliens. They want to believe in, like, I get it. Like I've, I've seen the ancient alien show and been like, oh, that's, that's cool. Like it feels good. You know, when you start <laughs> kind of giving into that, um, but yeah, some, but some like of these things something are just, that other people don't know or something. Sure. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's a million reasons. Um, and like the, the religious people, like they, they, they're kind of in the same boat, like totally different type of person. But I think like faith based stuff obviously speaks to them because they're like into religion. So uh, believing again in like this conspiracy thing, like it, it makes sense. Like it really aggregated a lot of different types of people, I think, for similar reasons, I guess. Mm. Yeah, fucking problems. <laughs> yeah it's nuts it's nuts i have i have like do you do you have like friends of yours that are like into that or have been into that into conspiracies 
like the Q and on stuff specifically, I guess. Yeah, like Squanto is a good friend of mine. And sure, okay. He's like massively into that shit. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I guess like Sticky Buds as well, the guy who's <clears throat> uh, yeah. you know, posting on my thread about Bitcoin being good. He, he's also a pretty big conspiracy theorist. Um, which I mean, like some of them make a bit of sense, right? Like uh, the Pizzagate one, I think it's like bullshit. And the reason why is because like, you know, someone broke in there with a gun trying right. to find a pedophile ring in a basement of a pizza store that didn't wasn't have a, even basement, a basement. You know? yeah. It's like, yeah. how can you see that one as legit? But also it's like if you uh, check, I think it was the owner of the pizza store's house and, and you see the kind of <clears throat> the kind of art that he has like hanging up on his walls, it's pretty freaking questionable art. Like it's it's weird, like childishly occult, like fucking just strange, right. strange art. Like who I think, else? I like, think I would, have seen that, yeah. Yeah, like why would you have that kind of art hanging in your house? So, the, so there is like questionable shit surrounding these situations and I could see For how sure. you could easily, <clears throat> you know, construe it as some some weird stuff going on. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, actually, I, I had Squanto on this podcast a while ago, and he actually did not become like I, when he was being recorded. He didn't get that open about like conspiracy theory. So I think to some degree he's like not trying to be super public about it, which is why I think he got off his Twitter and started a Discord server too. Yeah, because you don't want to. You don't want people arguing with you, telling you that your shit is wrong. Which is also why I think Bitcoiners get annoyed. Yeah, it just yeah. doesn't feel good to be wrong. Um, Which is why it also feels I bad guess. losing at chess. Because then you're like, no, I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I still like it. I think I like losing more than I like winning. <clears throat> really? If that makes sense. Yeah, because it's like every every move you make is like... At, to some extent, it's like an estimation. You've calculated as far as you really can in your head, and you're like, I think I have an advantage if I go this way. So if you get proven wrong, it's like, oh, that's a surprise. Like, it's it's more exciting to be proven wrong than it is like, oh, yeah, I was right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so pretty much every move I make, I, like, set up a conditional line and... I, I always like coming back and being like, oh, sick. I got like six moves into my conditional line. Like that's sick. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then other times coming back and being like, ah, oh, it didn't work. And then having to like recalculate a whole new thing. I guess like having to recalculate a whole new thing is kind of fun. So it gives you like m more shit to do. Does, does your teacher ever <clears throat> talk about like the, um, like when to calculate more and when it's actually better to calculate less? Because sometimes in like, in like, the opening maybe maybe middle game obviously like you know end game you're you have to calculate but before that i feel like sometimes if if you calculate like a really specific line you can get into trouble because now all of a sudden you're kind of contradicting some of like the fundamental ideas just for this one specific line that like you know maybe that's the one but if you're wrong it's you know yeah like if it doesn't have it yeah um uh, not not really. I mean, like, yeah, really my teacher or both of them um, kind of more speak about just sticking to fundamental stuff, right? Like 
Try not right. to isolate your pawns. Try not to double. I mean, so so the thing about doubled pawns that so you were talking you double, about that time. You double pawns all the time. It's not always bad, though. Like No, it's not. It's not. Yeah, it's not bad if they're connected. It's bad if they're isolated. So, like, if you have, sure. say, two pawns on the H file and two pawns on the F file and they're not connected to each other, then that's, like, a chronic weakness. But if you have, like, another pawn connecting them on the G file, so you have, like, kind of a triangle of pawns or whatever, they're all protecting each other, so they're still strong. Sure. <clears throat> and in some ways, they're, like, stronger, right? Because if, if your king is behind all of those pawns, it's going to be harder to get to it than if it's just behind, you know, the standard three pawns that would be there otherwise. Sure. But, like, so, but when I watch John, like, in in good games, if he gets a one-pawn advantage... He's trading everything, just trading down just mm. to convert that. So to me, it's like if I'm doubling your pawns, obviously it's, it's you know, always conditional. But I've, it's like to me, it's like it's, it's, it's an accomplishment. This is something that I can kind of take advantage of later because all I'm all I really want is just one pawn. I'm not trying to blow anybody out. I'm just trying to get that edge and then convert uh, from there. That's also what I think I need to improve on the most is converting. Because mm. the sexy part of chess is, like, achieving the advantage. That's the fun part, you mm -hmm. know? But then once you, once you have the advantage, now you got to actually play perfect chess to the end and, like, you know, close it out. Um, yeah, that is true. I definitely think, um, like, if you, if you have a one-pawn advantage and you're a strong player, then the goal should just be to trade everything off so you're up a pawn in an endgame, basically. Yeah, we are not that yeah. good yet. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. Um. <laughs> Like more often than not, especially in blitz, I can be up like four pawns and still draw, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's very easy to do if you like are in a 10 minute game and by the end game, you've got three minutes on the clock and like you've, you can't calculate everything in that amount of time, right? Especially For sure. at the level that I'm at. For sure. <clears throat> but yeah, I yeah. think um the main things that I've gotten out of these lessons is just like fundamental stuff you know like if there's an open file put your rook on it if like you know try not to isolate your pawns try to develop all your pieces in the opening before moving anything else like try not to move a piece twice in the opening try not to put it somewhere For where sure. it can instantly get attacked because then you have to move it again and you your opponent gets tempo try try not to like um you know help your opponent develop through trading stuff like that yeah for sure like just all that fundamental stuff was like a pretty big thing and then <clears throat> other than that uh i've been going um going over this book with one of my teachers by jeremy silman called uh, reassess your chess and a lot of the book is just kind of like uh uh, the goal of the book, I guess, is to get you to be able to look at a position and just very easily be able to tell like who has the advantage. And a lot of it is just like comparing your opponent's pieces to your pieces, right? Like who has the better knight, who has the better bishop and so on and so forth. And right. you can kind of tell who that is based on like, you know, how active the piece is. So like in some positions, there'll be like a bishop behind a pawn on one side and then the other bishop is like super good. And then he's like, yeah, and if you run this position through analysis, you can see like why it has a plus one advantage, even though material is equal or whatever. For sure. I've definitely seen uh, like players on YouTube that when they, they explain their process, it's like, all right, what is my worst piece? I'm just going to mm. improve that, you know, because a lot of times middle games, especially the way you play, you like to lock down 
the position or in our games at least it's like it's never just open you know well, so that's because yeah once you open everything up it just gets way sketchy i reckon <laughs> it's it's yeah. better i think to play but like safe if, and incrementally but if you so like like the way your book is saying if you assess the position and you and you decide i have the advantage if if, if i have an edge mm-hmm. most i i feel like opening up the position helps me more than it does you Mm. you see what i mean so if i ever feel like oh i have an advantage now that's when i'll start going for pawn breaks and stuff like that because if i if i let you improve one or two more pieces then all of a sudden i don't have the advantage and that the tension is gonna is gonna break like there is gonna be a pawn break and um i feel like if you have some kind of edge before that it's in your in your favor to to do that that's that's what i was going to ask you actually is do you do they work with you on like identifying what pawn breaks to go for uh we haven't actually gone through that stuff yet Um, that that's definitely something that like like obviously we're like around the same um you know in terms of like uh chess playing or whatever but especially because you you favor positions where it's like closed and locked down choosing the pawn choosing which pawn breaks to go for is like that's kind of like the next thing that i think like is gonna just take you to the next level Mm, yeah that's a good point i should should ask them about that because it's hard Uh, it's yeah like dude it's always like a pawn move hey that can like make or break a game i feel like they're like little suicide bombers because they're worth like one point and you can just, I don't know. I've lost, I've lost so many games to like a, some random like F4 or some shit. And like, I'm like, God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> never, never like think of these pawn moves. Um, so, so a lot of the reason I like to keep, uh, uh, keep, keep positions closed is because I've noticed opponents always are fine with trading off bishops um, or they're fine with trading off bishops for um, like, like I'll trade off my bishop for a knight and everyone always thinks that bishops are better, right? But if you keep the position totally closed and at the end of the game you have two bishops and I have two knights, then I'm probably better because knights are way better in a closed position because they can jump stuff. For sure. Well, that's that's just a mistake on their part. They shouldn't be they shouldn't mm-hmm. be doing that. But also depending on like um where your pawns are. You know, like one bishop is going to be your weak bishop, and one weak one bishop is going to be your strong bishop, um, mm. pretty much in every game. Yeah. Do you, like so with our games, uh, I haven't really like noticed a pattern in your openings that much. Do you kind of just develop based on fundamentals? Yeah. So in the beginning, in the beginning, I like so John Bartholomew. He like he never for the earlier videos at least he never really got into specific openings and like traps and things like that so i just felt like yeah i'm just focusing on you know controlling the center you know not making some of those mistakes that you you mentioned and and i I would watch other players play and they had theory memorized and they're playing all these moves but uh who knows if they could even come up with those you know on their own like at to, to some extent you can only get so far until you eliminate like blunders from your level of play you know and playing theory doesn't really help me hone my ability to like avoid those so for a long time i was just like yeah i'm probably better off i'll probably learn uh chess faster just by kind of trying to play you know principled 
you know, like fundamentals. But recently I've started to get to a point where like, all right, I think I've, I've maxed out how good I can get without having like a real, you know, opening kind of guide, you know, um, cause it's especially in like, uh, time controlled games, it's like they get such a time lead on you if they, if they just know the top five lines. Um, mm. so yeah, the other thing is, um, I've noticed it's not necessarily knowing the move order of the openings. It's knowing like the main idea for yeah. the opening, like why you're playing, you know, for instance, the, the opening I'm playing in our game now, the perk, my main goal is to play E5, which I've already played. And then my next main goal is to try and get my knight. I shouldn't be telling you this because I'm playing you, but I mean, you would know this anyway if you knew the opening and you'd be trying well, to stop that anyway. I mean, we've we've played like this kind of same game like several times. My main goal is just to get rid of that, uh, just to get rid of that bishop, the one that you can get. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That that's actually fine to do in this opening. Apparently, it's like because that bishop is just bad anyway. Like it's just being ketoed there, and it is. I mean, it is until things open up. Right. Yeah. That's and that's the thing about bishops is you can you can. I feel like uh, an intermediate player will look at a bishop like you were saying and say, oh, that's a bad bishop because it's blocked by um, by a pawn. But the next level up from there is saying, OK, what what pawn break eventually activates my bishop? You see, mm. you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. And. Um, yeah, but I know I know you like to go for like the late late in the game night forks like it's probably the most annoying uh thing to deal with <laughs> on the chessboard is a knight like yeah like in end games because you have to calculate <laughs> so much more yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but yeah my next goals basically with our game is to play uh knight d7 and then try and play f5 as well and then basically you end up with this like big pawn structure and the, the goal the is the to pyramid. sort of use your pieces to support all those pawns and just keep like pushing them up the board basically um that's, yeah, and then the London system is kind of a similar type of thing, except like you just start with that sort of pawn pyramid starting from D4. Right. And then you just, again, using all of your pieces to to try and push up the board. So does the, like in the <clears> game <throat> that we're playing, how does that strategy change between me castling short or castling long? Because I've castled long twice now against that opening, and I feel, I think it's worked. Yeah, I think it's uh, it kind now, of now I can just pawn storm on on the king side and just yeah. Um, so I think at this point, uh, when you play uh, long castles, my my goal I think changes to playing b five and then trying to like yeah develop on the on the side you castled on because yeah right. c c six and b five are like the other idea in the perk, which is basically just playing on the other side of the board. Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah again like i mean i've played this opening now in like hundreds of games probably yeah. especially a lot in blitz and i still don't fully understand like deeply the idea of it i think that's like one of the hardest things in the opening it's not like memorizing the the top like 20 moves right or whatever it's it's just like what's really, the objective yeah really deeply understanding like the objective of of why you're playing those moves which is why, like, for instance, I used to use the Explorer a lot and just look through the um, the Explorer on, on chess.com. Have you ever used that? I actually, I don't use it on the on my computer. <laughs> I only use the app, so I don't have, like, 
some of the functionality that I've seen in like other people's videos and stuff. But it mm. looks sick. Yeah, the Explorer is great. So basically, like it just um, you can just like uh, click on moves and it can show you like uh, how many games this move has existed in before. Yeah. Like, so it's you know it's been played whatever a hundred thousand times or twenty times whatever. And then it shows you the percentage of games that were won by white or black or how many games were drawn from that opening right. uh, or from, from that move. And then you can like follow it all the way down. Uh, and usually in our games, we're like not in the Explorer by like move six or something because you know, <laughs> one of us will make a move that just doesn't exist <laughs> that like no grandmaster has seen fit to play. Right, <laughs> right. right. Um, <clears throat> well, that's, that's actually one of the things that um, the Gotham chess guy He's really big on so like you're you're learning this one opening right like you you said you've played hundreds of hundreds of games and so you're you're piecing together bit by bit like what what the objective actually is you know when your objective maybe changes based on what they play so every time you play somebody you are in your comfort zone and you know maybe they are maybe they're not but you definitely are mm -hmm. um, and so the Gotham chess guy was like he was like you know, some of these openings are objectively, you know, just better than others, but some of them are really effective just by virtue of the fact that people don't see them like hardly mm. ever. Like when I tried the Dutch a couple times, that was just because <laughs> he was like, yeah, nobody ever sees this. They don't know what to do against this. And there's a lot of mistakes you can make. I eventually stopped playing it because it's just like, it's just a shitty opening. Yeah, it's the worst. Um, <laughs> I'm actually but, playing a game against a friend now who who played the Dutch for this reason as well. It's so bad. It's so bad. But it yeah. it is kind of a it's like a sexy idea. Like, ooh, you can play a worse <laughs> one and like, mm. you know, I don't know. It's cool. Yeah, it's like when you're playing blitz games or something in one minute and you see someone open with like H three or some shit. <laughs> yeah, like, but sometimes those people are good. It's like sometimes those. Yeah. I mean, really good players can open with any any move really and a lot of them know how to transpose from one opening to another yeah right. uh, which is yeah that's really cool. i think the next goal for me is like learning more openings so i can you know, seamlessly move between them depending on what what my opponent plays right dude did you see them do you do you watch agad mator i have no idea what that is he's like a youtuber he just does game analysis but he just covers oh. like all the like top games by you know like the pros mm -hmm. and um he covered a game the other day where hikaru played the bong cloud yeah against like a, another grandmaster and he actually won That's have you awesome. ever have you seen this do you use reddit a lot not really okay. I, I i know that i would like it if i used it but i don't i don't really do it a lot yeah there's a really sick subreddit um called anarchy chess and there it's just like a reddit <laughs> full of chess memes basically <laughs> And uh, there's a ton of, uh, like, everyone just, like, loves the bong cloud. Of in course, chat. of yeah. course. <laughs> it's just the memeiest opening. Yeah. And they all, uh, they all refer to Gary Kasparov as Gary Chess, and they say <laughs> that he invented chess 35 years ago. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I yeah. mean, it's, it's not actually a bad, like, it can be a good opening. The bond cloud like i've seen like analysis of it like there's there's like basically one way you can make it decent um but it can be decent i mean you instantly give up castling privileges on move two totally which is seems bad based yeah like very unprincipled <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's a great reddit um how long have you been playing by the way 
Um, um, a couple years, I guess, like on and off. Uh, I started just kind of messing around, like, cause I was always in airports and hotels and stuff. And I needed, I needed like an app that didn't need the internet, you know? Mm. Um, but I didn't get, I didn't get serious into like watching YouTube videos until, uh, I don't know, a year, a year and a half ago, probably. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's super fun. It's awesome. And now it's like, it's like, everybody's interested because of that show the the queen's gambit like now yeah. now we have a lot of friends who are just starting to get into it um which is really cool yeah i've noticed that it's like taking a it's gotten a big upswing in users yeah chess.com just hit like 50 million users or something like that this is a crazy like how many people in the on the planet do you think play chess it's got to be like 100 million people at least right probably more i have no I have no idea. I don't know how you could even come up with confidently come up with a number. Oh, let's Google it. <laughs> how many people on the planet play chess? Six hundred and five million. How? Yeah. How they? They think it's that many. Okay. Whatever. It's, it's bigger than we think, cause right, cause it's like it's not that big in the states compared to a lot of other countries. Yeah, and then also like there's probably a shitload of people who play it who just like you know know the rules but like at what point sure. do you consider them a chess player as well yeah know? and india is massive yeah it's right? huge there so, it's huge in russia yeah but i they, mean like population wise india is just so there's so many people the fact that it's popular there like mm. I, I bet you half of all chess players are in india right now yeah it's, could, it's you quite could say. possible uh, there's a grandmaster from there called Pragu something or other who's a, who's like 12 in in India. It's crazy. Um, crazy. They, and in Russia, they teach chess at school. Like it's just one of the classes you do there. That's awesome. <clears throat> yeah, it's really cool. But anyway, so my point is that out of 605 million players, there's only 1,600 grandmasters. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, that it's is like, crazy. How many How many kids do you think are trying to make bass music oh man i would say more than 605 million maybe what really maybe not bass music but like uh, producing electronic music sure maybe? like i don't know how I'm many saying, electronic you, you see music? what i'm getting at though right like we are we are some of like the very fortunate few that get to make a living off of music um the grandmasters of edm if you will <laughs> <laughs> yeah someone said how many electronic music artists are there in the world on Quora um and somebody says billions uh wait okay there's no way I don't know I don't, yeah. I don't think it's more than what was it 600 that's a lot dude what how many it's not able even close I mean you could probably work this out by like how many Ableton how many? users there are <laughs> All right, there's several hundred thousand Ableton users. Wait, but there's a video about Ableton that states they've sold over a million copies of Ableton Live. So assuming everyone's only bought it one time, um, right? Then at least a, a lot, million. A lot of them have never bought it. Also, <clears throat> yeah, that's a good point. So 
and then a lot of them who did buy it maybe don't make electronic music with it like they might might like run theater performances with that's it or true. something like that that's true we're getting closer <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then you have to count that's just ableton and like how many logic users are there um and this is even harder to tell right because logic i think it comes, comes with like every with, computer yeah yeah so it can and then you got to count garage band as well and like main stage and all that shit that just comes on an apple so down it yeah that'd be a lot um but yeah the amount yeah how many people do you think make a living off bass music um i don't know that seems hard too Speaking of which, how, um, this might be like a too personal question for a podcast, but how have you made your living like through quarantine? Um, I had what three months of shows, uh, or not three months, but like I don't know, a month and a half, two months, whatever the whenever that everything cut off. Um, so, um, that that was like a good. To be honest, like that was enough for to last me the year. Um, but then of course, you know, you have like, you know, sample pack income and people streaming on Spotify and stuff like that. Um, I didn't really, you know, I didn't really have to do much more than that, honestly. Um, but I'm like, I'm also like, I don't, I've never spent any of my money ever. You know what I mean? So I wasn't like, I wasn't, one of these guys like trying to drive a crazy car paying la rent like trying to reaffirm that lifestyle to you know bands or whatever like i'm just always low-key always save my money so um i just kind of didn't have to stress too much nice yeah that's a good idea yeah i'm sort of the same i i was i'm never like trying to i mean i also don't make like tons of money but like i definitely am not like trying to buy a tesla and like yeah <laughs> all that kind of shit right but you Just, but you you seem like one of the the artists that is well suited to um you know to kind of grinding this year right because I, I imagine you're like the allocation of your revenue streams is a lot more balanced than most of us like where for me it's like so much of it is live you know yeah i would uh, say like my live revenue um is like not that much it's like less than 50 grand a year for sure uh and my website like makes a lot more than that just from like tutorials and all that kind of stuff that's awesome um, that's yeah great. So, and and then like spotify actually has been doing okay f oh i guess it's like just streaming services in general i mean i i just have um like a bunch of random singles and albums and shit that i didn't sign to labels back in the day uploaded yeah. through DistroKid or whatever totally. and like that same. still turns over about 500 bucks in streams a month which is pretty cool same that's that's what i like i mean <laughs> obviously people complain about spotify and stuff a lot because it's like it is a shitty deal um but i'm also one of the artists that's been doing this like a long time um i don't know actually how long you've been doing it but i know we've both been at it for a while like a, yeah, um, about a decade or so yeah, exactly. So the fact that I that like we have this back catalog of stuff that's pretty much all independent uh, and independently released, um, it it adds up, you know. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think the first thing I heard from you was um, maybe in like 2012 or something. It was that knife party thing you did. Oh, okay, yeah. It was like, it was like that was like I for like a year I just did like a 
like trap remix every like Monday <laughs> or something and like but mm-hmm. just those those were the times uh but even even before that like I, I released on I was like the first or second release on saturate records you might be familiar with mm-hmm. um and uh I did I was doing like kind of like experimental down tempo stuff back then like you know like flying lotus kind of vibe um so yeah i just been doing it a while <clears throat> yeah nice yeah that's sick um what kind of uh like shows were you doing before uh quarantine hit was it mostly headline shows or was it support or yeah it was headline shows but it wasn't like it wasn't like on like a like a tour where I was bringing out like production and stuff. It was all fly out, you know, mm. dates. Um, but uh, yeah, I just, I had a bunch, I actually like, I barely made it back into the country. Cause I, I had some shows in Europe as like, I finished them like right as they were kind of closing the border. So I like barely made it back. Oh, wow. So um, like there was a chance you would have, like if if you had a two more days or I'm, something, you would have got stuck. Yeah, I'm not real. Yeah, I don't know how how I would have had to navigate that. I'm sure I'm sure there was some kind of protocol, or I hope there there was. But um, yeah, so I, I was literally playing until the very last second. Damn, um, it's insane. And were you doing shows basically like every day, or was it just every weekend? I actually the past year and a half, I've I've done like just weekend stuff and uh, unless unless I'm like, you know, overseas, like in Europe or Australia or something where it's like expensive to get all the way out there, you know, then you just mm. play as much as you can. Um, but as I've gotten kind of just older and wanted to find a little more balance in my lifestyle, um, just kind of decided like Thursday, Friday, Saturday of every week is kind of just gives gives my body like more of a schedule, you know. Hmm. Yeah, one thing I've noticed is um like I haven't got a lot of music finished this year, but I've started tons of shit. Uh, and I've noticed that um having like the weekends for shows, because uh, I was doing the same thing, but I was essentially just doing Fridays and Saturdays. Uh and I was just finding that it was uh a lot um like having that sort of it was almost like a deadline, right? Like a like a work yeah. deadline where I had to get some shit finished to play. For sure. Uh, so even if it wasn't like a finished piece of music, it was a playable piece of music. Um, and I, I found losing that kind of like just removed all deadlines from my life. And now I'm just like, ah, oh, shit is like, you know, no rush to get anything right. done. So I just don't get anything done. I mean, I get like a lot written, but I don't get a lot finished. Yeah. I actually like you. you would think that after all this time, I would have like a handle on like what my creative process is. Um, but I actually didn't. And I, I learned a lot uh, this year. Just that I made so much shit and finished like so little of it. it, it but it like it gave me deja vu of like finishing my my last EPs and like earlier albums and stuff. And I kind of realized it kind of always goes this way. Like I start a bunch of stuff and then out of like, you know, 30 tracks, there might be 12 where I'm like, these kind of feel like a family. Like hmm. there's a there's a cohesion between this body of work. Maybe not all of it, but these really sit well together. 
and I kind of will end up wrapping all those up at the same time. Um, yeah, so. I kind of have a similar process. I, I get to it, like I start tons of shit. I'll have like 100 whips and then I have to put myself in what I call whip prison where I just like <laughs> won't allow myself to start new shit until I like finish some of it. And For then sure. I'll go into this mode where I'm like, not necessarily enjoying working on the stuff that I'm finishing so much, but just like having to, because I know if I don't like force myself to, I just won't. Right. Also, yeah. I feel like feel like finishing songs, uh, like like all around the same time, it kind of ensures that your like mixing and mastering ability and and everything is like it's going to be consistent over the course of the whole project whereas like mm. if you have a finished if you do them all like in chronological order the first song and the last song could be you know a year apart and you may have gotten a lot better at something since then yeah or like a new tool might have come out like yeah. soothe or something exactly like that. exactly yeah yeah do you do you feel like um this kind of break in 2020 has that affected your like the command of your like focus, like your attention span, your... Oh, for sure. Um, I think if anything, my attention span has gotten better. Oh, that's great. But like it's gotten better in a sense that I've like just paid more attention to it, you know, like for instance, more conscious um, of it. before this break, like I was drinking a lot um, just because I was like always touring and all that shit. I was like, and essentially I was like drinking every day. Uh, so my attention for that reason was like horrible. Uh, but then, you know, on top of that, like I never read books, uh, right. partly because my attention was shitty and partly because I just didn't have time, partly because I was like lazy and just didn't want to read books. So like you know, reading books is something that I've gotten into. <clears throat> um, just doing a lot of like cooking and all that sort of shit, just doing stuff that I like normally wouldn't do. Uh, like slower Activities. yeah exactly yeah for sure like yeah i've become like more patient or something maybe yeah that's good that's great i i read something recently that was like a, basically a lot of times we think we are like multitasking by like doing our phone and then cooking and like checking our twitter and like doing all these things you know and like doing your laundry at the same time like we think we're killing it by multitasking but what we're really doing is like reinforcing this like lack of focus oh know? totally You're, yeah 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 i've been trying to like i just listened to this audio book over the past few days called um deep work by cal newport and he just talks about this shit exactly he's like yeah, you should just, you know, dedicate a few hours a day to deep work where you're just like, I'm not going to do anything else except this one task. And like whether you have to do that via Pomodoro timers or whatever. And then he right. like offers a bunch of strategies to maybe help. Um, I remember my question, by the way. My question was, yeah. um, do you think if this pandemic hadn't happened that you would have ever taken this long of a break from shows? Um, No. I mean, that would be like retirement. <laughs> Yeah, you I mean, know. I never would have either, right? But I mean, yeah. people do. Like, for instance, Tipper did it like for a, sure. a year. I mean, he had a heart surgery and stuff. But yeah, um, but he there there are very few artists that have the reverence to to get away with something like that. Mm. You know what I mean? Like Arl Grime can drop like once a year or whatever. You know, but for most guys in dance music, they got to drop something every three weeks just to keep people you know paying attention um in some way this is like what we were just talking about right it's like um 
like you're saying, by doing all of this stuff, like your laundry and cooking and all this crap, you're like just enforcing like a low attention span. It's almost like the same kind way of. with your release plan, right? Like maybe because RL Grime drops once a year, that's why his fans are totally. kind of like conditioned to this. Whereas like if you're dropping every three weeks, maybe that's why your fans are conditioned that way to expect that. Definitely true. But it, but it's a risk, you know? You're putting all your eggs in that basket. And to some extent, it's like doing a single every three weeks is like, it's a quick way to the <clears> middle. <throat> you know, it's like a, a lower risk route. But I think I think most artists want that kind of that kind of hype where they can just release once a year and it's like a huge deal, you know, mm. to their people. Yeah. So through quarantine, have you been releasing pretty steadily still? No, not no, not at all. Um, in a lot of ways, even be- before quarantine even hit, I was feeling a disconnect between just myself and music, you know, um, it's, it's hard to keep your relationship with music, you know, fresh, uh, when you've been, you know, doing this for so long and it's, then it's become your job and all these, you know, all these things. Um, and I was kind I could kind of feel it like just feeling like kind of estranged, you know, to it, just like the dubstep around me was getting like meaner and angrier and everything was like Halloween Mm -hmm. kind of vibes. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I like, you know, belong here anymore. Um, so even, even before 2020, I was kind of feeling like, all right, I need to get back to being like a fan of music. I got to find a new wave for myself that like gets me excited, you know, about this. Uh, somewhere where I feel like, you know, it's like just more of a home. Um, so even before 2020, I was already feeling like, all right, I need to take some time off and creatively like figure out a perspective. And it actually, you could say 2020 was like great timing for me. It was just very convenient to have all this time off, uh, especially to come up with a creative perspective while you have to play shows every weekend is much more difficult because then it's like every Thursday or whatever, you got to put together a set to appease a crowd and kind of like, you know, to some extent conform to what you think is going to work here or there or whatever. Um, So this was a nice break from even playing where I could just get in the studio, lab out, like I said, like, you know, 16 hour days or whatever, just get lost in here and figure out something that I think is cool and new and fresh where I can be excited about it again. Yeah, I kind of agree. I was I was sort of feeling the same way with my music. Like I was making a lot of shit just because I knew it would work, like sure. live. Yeah. And I wasn't necessarily writing stuff because, um, you know, not that I think like making stuff that you think is just going to work at a party is the wrong reason to make music. I mean, parties need to happen. They're very yeah. healthy for everyone to be social in that way, I think. And like totally. it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's good to have that kind of, thing but uh i think there's also like a part of you as an artist right that like need that craves this like other thing which is you know making something slightly deeper than just music that's designed to work a dance floor sure that's more designed for i don't know like sitting at home and listening to because it's like somewhat intelligent or interesting sound design wise or rhythmically or melodically or anything yeah and, and what we want out of our own music changes over time. Like there's been periods of my life where I was making stuff, you know, that 
just was just supposed to work and but the, but that's like what got me off that's what i loved you know producing at that at that time um so we just you know we all evolve and um i feel like as long as you're not fighting whatever that evolution is you're gonna continue to come up with your best music you know so um it's hard to have the confidence to do that though like when you know you have to like play a set and there's going to be like someone playing before you that's playing super heavy mean shit someone playing after you sometimes who totally. at a festival who's playing super heavy mean shit it's hard to have the confidence in yourself to be like no i'm just going to write like the vibiest shit i can yeah. and you know expect people to get down with this cuz like there's a big part of your brain just being like it's not going to work like that shit just does not work like you've right. maybe played shows before where you've tried stuff out like that and it didn't work and so on and so forth and it's really hard to yeah to do that, I mean, yeah. this this year, because of the absence of shows and the absence of that pressure, we've seen people come out with, you know, a wider range of music than I think we would have uh, otherwise, <laughs> even though I still think it's like way, way too narrow. Um, it will be interesting to see, though, when shows come back, who has the balls to like stay on that wave? Like, are we all, is everyone just going to, like, you know, re- conform, revert back to this, like, race to the bottom of just the hardest, <laughs> least tonal shit? You know what I mean? A lot of people, yeah. I'm sure, will. Um, it, but I think, like, in in some sense, 2020, like, this this break was, like, a, a great opportunity for a lot of people to say, you know what, maybe I was out of control for a little bit there. Maybe I lost sight of what I really want to do and what I want to sound like. Because, obviously, a lot of people were starting to sound the same and still do, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll speak for myself. Like, I hope that I can have the balls to be like, fuck it, I'm getting a second chance at this, like, I'm going to make sure that people are walking away from a set being like, that was different. That was uniquely hero bus, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, everyone will get back together in the like real world and they're going to be like, are you tough? I'm tough. Listen yeah. To this. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, we've, we've, for us, people who've been doing this for as long as we have, like we've seen this happen, right? Like we've seen dubstep fall off before because it became that pissing match. Mm-hmm. And like, there was nowhere for the genre to go. Right. You know the I mean? same thing I think happened with trap as well, right? Like, well, trap, trap to me, trap to me had a different fate because it, it almost got like, it got too complicated. Like all the hybrid stuff, like even though you could say I kind of contributed to like that, but the hybrid stuff, a lot of it is producer music. You know what I mean? Mm. It's made, it's made to impress other producers and it's really not, it, it wasn't effective dance music the way it was with the way the early trap was, even though at from a producer standpoint, that was now underwhelming. Um, it was still better functionally as dance music. Mm. Yeah, That's true. I mm. Yeah, I, I never really got the trap thing, but at the time I was living in Australia um, and I think that was like probably a hugely different experience to living in Georgia. Um, oh, yeah. Totally. Where where trap is like probably a pretty big thing because it's but but eventually trap, like eventually trap took over uh, Australia and New Zealand and like what what they like, 
I probably still, or maybe maybe they're on to rhythm now, but um, <laughs> I just I always felt like they were maybe like a season behind or whatever. Like like the first time I went there and played like hybrid trap, they were used to like regular regular trap or whatever and it was kind of different to them and then the next time i came back it was like i played some rhythm and they were expecting the hybrid trap <laughs> you know and like some of the rhythm in some of the cities was like too much obviously perth is just like has been rhythm for forever um has it actually yeah as long as i can remember man perth oh. like perth is probably the first place i ever heard rhythm interesting like from who I have no idea. Huh, crazy. Yeah, I didn't ever think of Perth as being a rhythm place. To me, and maybe it's just the shows that I've been on, but um, yeah, like that's that's one of the places I, I've played where I know like, all right, this is what you play and you don't play anything else. <laughs> like, <laughs> you just don't do it. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, when I think of Perth, I think of like, uh, like bands, you know, like Carnival and oh, Pendulum yeah. and stuff like that. For sure. Yeah, Perth has a lot of sick music coming out of it, though. Like Zeke, I guess, came out of there too. Zeke, um, I think, uh, is Chibs from Perth, uh, I want to say? Not sure who that is. <clears throat> like a rhythm, like an up-and-coming rhythm guy, I guess. Nice. What do you think of rhythm? Is that like a, a genre you're into? I think... I think well, I think all all genres are awesome, but I think I think rhythm is really sick. I'm way more into like I guess what would be like purist, you know, rhythm like the early more minimal stuff where like yeah, like the sound design is kind of underwhelming, but it's all about that unique pocket that's mm. created by the swing. Like, like to me, that's Juro the Digger or whatever. Yeah, sure. Like all like all that minimal stuff where it's just like. If that pocket is just like it's unique and it's and you know just like every other genre's fate in EDM it's it was going to get more and more maximal more and more maximal and um you know the the rhythm now is much less of a facet of the genre uh to me at least or a lot of you know what I what I'm hearing um so it's kind of getting away from what I liked in it uh in the beginning mm. but um yeah i mean i remember i remember the first like like blood thinners rhythm mix i heard and i was like oh i get i get this like this is cool you know mm. yeah the thing i like about rhythm um at least the stuff that i've heard is just uh what i think is funny is they're like i'm gonna squeeze like every single bit of volume i can out of this limiter and oh, just yeah. get this to like negative two luffs and then the DJs just come along and they're like, yeah, fucking play two at once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that, then it's just like. That is probably my least, and people won't like hearing shit like this, but that's probably my least favorite part of the whole rhythm thing is like the obsession with like doubling everything <laughs> and like these tracks, like, like the early stuff was made to be minimal you know, where two tracks at the same time can actually sound good. But now it's gotten so maximal. Like, since Faizo made Jotaro, like, I don't know, like, if you've read or whatever, but that drop was, like, two whips that he just threw on top of each other. Oh, wow. So, so that, that was, like, the first drop that was, like, designed to sound like a double, you mm. know? And so now everyone's making that and doubling... <laughs> 
those right you so know and like, like a quad or whatever yeah it's like sonically there's there's just not space and um so it's i'm i'm not really into that that kind of djing honestly yeah i mean for a long time i just thought all rhythm sounded the same but i i felt that way about like trap for a long time too i also felt i feel like i feel that way about lots of genres it's like when you're standing from the outside looking at it it's always like ah oh, this is just all like country music for instance just all sounds the same to me sure sure um but yeah the more i looked into rhythm the more i was like pretty impressed with the sound design in it and stuff like that a lot yeah of cool stuff going on in there like all the crazy tonal delays and like comb filters and stuff exactly like that. yeah it's cool <clears throat> um i think like to speak to what you're saying about it like it all sounding the same like you can apply that to any genre like until you really know about it but i think across the board in edm our genres are so narrow like people will copy like one song and then call and just call that a genre now mm-hmm. and it's like like if you listen to like rock and roll you hear like 12 different bands that sound like so wildly different but it's still all rock and roll versus like the difference between like dubstep and rhythm is like the fuck it's like just the snare at this point you know what i mean and it's yeah, like yeah. <laughs> is that is that the distinction if if that's the distinction between genres it's like i don't know i just feel like people should feel like they can do more i guess i don't know yeah no i totally agree but like i like i said earlier i think it comes down to just having the confidence as an artist to do that right like um for instance the reason you know, like we all want to fit in with each other, right? Nobody wants to be, like I was saying before, no one wants to feel wrong or no one wants to feel like an outsider. Like everyone wants to feel like they're a part of the tribe and stuff like that. And it's almost like yeah, if you don't do the this thing that everyone else is doing, which is like the surefire way of you know, um, being recognized as you know, part of that tribe or whatever, then it's you know, going to feel a little strange and... It's yeah, it's hard to have the confidence, I think, to to be doing something completely unique. There's some artists that do it, you know, like for instance, I was saying earlier, Tipper, he obviously has the confidence to just do his own thing and like doesn't right. really shit. And it's worked out really well for him. But I think a lot of artists think if they do the same thing, it would never work out well for them. And yeah. Well, it it it's not um like not all times are created <clears throat> equal, in my opinion. Like back when Tipper took his stand and like and and committed to his sound i think there was a lot more diversity in sound you know Um, i mean because there was oh yeah objectively less music that existed then yeah well yeah but like those tribes that you're talking about like at this point those are carved in stone like Mm. i can you can write down the formula like to the t right now of what you're talking about back then it was like you'd go to you'd go to like a show and it's like some kids playing on like a a MIDI MPD. Some kids playing on like you know like a launch pad with Ableton. Another kid is like you know DJing. Like I don't know. To me, like it was kind of the Wild West more so than it is now. Um, like the first time I pl- I toured in China, um, they hadn't had like obviously they have all all everything that we have all sorts of you know different kinds of music, but um bass music was like pretty new to a lot of people there and the guys that were the guys and girls that were opening for me they were just wildly different and they were playing shit where like me coming from america 
I'm like, wow, like I'm assuming like the balls on this person to go out here and play something this like five minute breakdown, ambient, whatever. Um, and like maybe they know maybe they know what like the rules are mm-hmm. and they do have the balls, but maybe it's just the Wild West out there and they don't know, you know, the next year when I played China, they weren't it wasn't like that. They 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 had they had picked it up and they were more familiar with the culture and and what they were playing was limited to, you know, a much, uh, you know, finer uh, path. Um, but for me, it was so cool to mm-hmm. see that while it lasted, you know, before people knew the rules, you saw a lot more creative decisions being made. Yeah, I feel like um, China is like they obviously have the great firewall of China where like, you know, they can't connect to anything outside or whatever. So it's um, I've never played there or been there. But I've heard from friends that have that it's like promoters will bring people over from America or from other countries and they'll sort of like market them as if they're this huge American act and like nobody can prove them wrong because they can't connect to the Internet and check. It's I mean, it's not it's not quite like that. I'm, I think it was like that at a certain point. Um, people there, like they know about VPNs, you know, especially like the wealthier, you know, the people from wealthier families and stuff. Um, like they, they know what's, what's hot. Like the first time I was there, I don't think they really, I don't think they really knew, um, that much, but by now they, they totally do. My cat just like freaked out for some reason. It's pretty weird. She just like ran down there and then ran over there. Cats, they get the zoomies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you have a cat? I have a dog, actually. Does your dog get the zoomies? Oh, yeah. Usually around <laughs> like 9 o'clock, 8.45. It's like <laughs> zoomy time. Like he's just asking for a walk? Um, I don't know. It's I, I want to say it's like on some level she knows like bedtime is coming. Like I'm running out of time to like get rid of this energy. Like she knows she won't be able to sleep unless she kind of tires herself out or something. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Um, what are we talking about? Like rules and production and stuff. Have you like the music that you've made this past year, has that has that shifted? And do you think like the the time off in 2020, like was a big part of that, I guess. So what I noticed is like the first uh, like half of 2020, like just when lockdown started and for about six months after, I was writing like no bangers at all. It was just all IDM, all like down tempo, weird glitchy music and ambient shit and like all sorts of stuff. And I was just like, I don't know, I just had this feeling of like live music's never coming back. So like what's the point in making bangers, right? Right. and then I guess like slowly over the past six months, I've been like getting back into making heavier stuff again. And now I am at the point where I have like sort of two albums sitting there just waiting to be finished. One is like all down tempo glitchy IDM stuff. And the other one is like all EDME sounding stuff with like mm-hmm. vocals on it and shit like that. So yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like it's almost as live music is like encroaching and I, the reality is like dawning on me that I'm probably gonna have to like release some bangers and play them at some point that I'm like slowly getting into making them again. Yeah, no, that's that's perfect. <clears throat> I would say I, my transition was like the opposite. It was like at the in the first part, I was just like 
just like trying to hold on and just like still continuing to make like bangers and then the second part of the year i was like you know what like that's just not the context does not call for bangers right now mm. um so i started making like much you know chiller more complicated stuff nice yeah i'd love to hear some of it um yeah for sure i can i can send as soon as i you know finish it yeah you don't send whips are you a non-whip sender uh I prefer not to, you know, because like I, when I when I get someone's opinion on something, uh, you only get one opportunity uh, at like someone's first time hearing it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's a good point. Because um, yeah. once once they've heard the whip, it's like you can't you can't get feedback on the final if if you've let them hear the whip. Like, it's, wait, why? It's, Cause they, cause you, you're, you already have an idea of what the song, how you thought the song was going to finish or, you know, where the idea came from. Um, it's just, it's, it's not, your perspective is not as fresh, um, as someone who's just hearing it for the first time. Yeah, true. I don't know. I feel like as a producer, I'm pretty good at like being able to see things, you know, not in the same way that maybe a lot of people do. I'm, I'm the worst at sending whips, man. I send them so often to so many people, but it's mostly just because I, even though I have like barefoots and like Audi's headphones and like all like, you know, fucking every plugin under the sun, I still just don't trust my opinion on mix downs. And I'm always like trying to send it to a bunch of people to be like, Hey, does this sound good? Like, even if I'm referencing against stuff and I like, they sound pretty similar to me and all that stuff, I'm just, I, who, I have like my who group gives of you, friends. Who gives you the best like mixing feedback? I mean, it's hard. Like, it's different for different genres, right? But sure. like, I have um, like this sort of you know group of people that I like to send you to, whose opinions that I trust. Um, if I'm trying to get like you know super loud dubstep stuff going, then like Ulusile generally gives me pretty good opinions. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, like I find his stuff to be like maybe too loud and aggressive sometimes. So no such thing. <laughs> What's that? No such thing for that kind of oh, music. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, no, it's the style for sure. Um, dude, do you know a producer named Ellie Derp? Say that again? E- Ellie Derp. It's spelled E-L-I-D-E-R-P. Uh-uh. So I've been getting good opinions from him lately. He's like, he's like this 18-year-old producer who's just insane. He's so awesome. good. And um, yeah, I've been been super into his stuff lately been writing a few tunes with him and yeah i just like really think he's got a good opinion on a lot of stuff so um uh do you do you know noir k-n-o-i-r nope he's like a again like another 18 year old 17 year old producer these people are just like so young and yeah oh yeah just insanely good at music these days it's crazy I, I wonder if like i'd grown up in the same sort of time where you know stuff was that you know ableton was just given to me as a six-year-old or something if, if i'd you know somehow be that good at production at 18 as well yeah well i i, I think because i think about that sometimes too and i think i definitely i would not have ended up making edm had I gotten into production now because like the music that I was into when I started producing it was like it was not cool you know what Mm. I mean like it was like nerdy as shit it was like you know like AFX twin square pusher like all that kind of stuff and I'm sure I would have looked at what is EDM now 
And I would have been like, oh, that's that's like some mainstream, you know, you know, lame, whatever. Um, yeah, I just don't think I would have ended up here. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I but imagine you, li- you were listening to like some more stuff. Yeah, I got into electronic music through Psytrance, actually. And then oh, from, oh, okay. from Psytrance, I went to like Aphex and Square Pusher and stuff like that. And then from that, yeah, slowly go. I, I went through like a massive breakcore phase as well, where I was just listening to tons of breakcore. Uh, and then I went through like, um, I mean, I was super into metal alongside all of that. And then I guess I like slowly shifted more over towards like heavier beat driven stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Metal's like one of the pieces to like the current like mosaic of influences of like most of, you know, our like industry that I don't have in common. I never, I never got <laughs> into metal. Like mm. for me, yeah, it was even... like, oh, sorry, go on. Uh, yeah. For me, it was always like hip hop and then electronica, you know. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess, coming from Atlanta. But you can you notice this a lot, like even in the logos of Rhythm Artist, right? It's like always oh, that Metallica yeah. style logo with like all the horns and shit on it and like For sure. <laughs> For sure. I mean now it's like just standard. Like if you're if you're a dubstep, there are plenty of dubstep acts that have that aesthetic now that may or may not even have an affinity for metal. It's like it's just kind of the state of dubstep now. Yeah, it's just like after sudden death, that was just the thing to do or something. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, the tune that I played out, it was actually like this meme thing from SoundCloud where um somebody took like a shit ton of buildups from, um, oh, okay. yeah. from like all of these <laughs> different dubstep tunes and they just like put them all together. So it's like this two minute, like never ending <laughs> dubstep buildup. Yeah. And then uh, at the end of it, I like stapled on, uh, fuck, it's like some sudden death tune. So one where it's like, let's get back to the basics and then like has the side trance bit and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I played I played that out for like a few sets and it was just, I mainly played it out just to piss people off because it was like two minute build up. <laughs> just, yeah. I find um this is something I got from Yeti is playing sets. I find it's um the way he put it is he was like, I like to paint with different colors, you know, like very vastly different colors, like putting orange next to blue or something like that. Um, so he'll, and I like the sets that I've seen by him, I just don't get bored of them because they're just, every song is so different, you know, like he'll play some weird chip tune thing and then he'll play like a rhythm song and then he'll play like a break chord tune and then he'll play like one of his own songs and like, he'll just play like the most vastly different shit and he somehow makes it work with the mixing because he's just like a good DJ and I find, um, that like I took a lot of influence from the few times that I've seen him play and now I just try and do similar shit where like every now and then I'll just do something like that like play this like incredibly long build up and then just so there's like sections of the set that are like really really memorable musically because they're just so different from other stuff that's happening at the time for sure and like you know opening play just like dropping audio memes in the middle of sets like a random yeah that's kind of how I have come to think of of sets is like um like the you know drops is where everybody goes crazy but the like the breakdowns and and like the the lapses in energy that's where the identity uh for me at least that's where like those are the opportunities to kind of inject more identity into uh into the sets 
you know, so I, I try to pick those to be stuff that like um, is memorable and like creates a moment, you know. Mm. Yeah, it's always hard to say what's going to do that though, but it's usually like not the standard like tunes, right, that, that you want to put in there just to like keep the energy going or whatever. It's usually some weird shit. I, I mean, I agree with you. Like it's hard to know, but at the same time, it's like literally anything else. Literally mm, yeah. <laughs> anything but like super hard fucking bass to the face type shit. Anything else will be jarringly different and like unexpected and memorable if you mix it in with a bunch of, you know, in your face EDM. Um, so, yeah, I just it's it's it couldn't be easier to like get a point across, I I feel like. You know, and I and actually like I never I realized like way late in my career that I wasn't even trying to achieve that, you know, like like I was watching like at this point, I'm, most of my shows had become like dubstep shows and Riot 10 had that song like all oh, my fucking head bangers, bang your, break your fucking neck. And uh, <laughs> everyone, everyone was at least playing the vocal, you know, and um, and no matter who was playing like that was a moment, you know, for the crowd where they could all like take a break and like sing that shit and then go in for the next drop. But he, that was a moment that he owned. And I was like, <clears> at this point, like I've had songs that, you know, go off and like people know are like hero buzz songs, but I don't have like, I didn't feel like I had like a moment of my own. And it wasn't cause I was like constantly trying and just not achieving it. I just had never had that as a goal. You know, like mm. I, I'm and I set out to write something that like created my moment. And then I just I wrote what the fuck like in, you know, in two seconds, just because that like that being the objective. Um, I don't know. I just always thought that was interesting that I ne it never occurred to me to like try to do that. Mm. But it serves you really well to have one of those. Yeah, true. That's a good point. Yeah, I've never really tried to do that either. Do it. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> it's like your top advice. Get a yeah. get a moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you can have one that's your own, like they're just, it's it's just so useful, you know. Um, mm. Especially when it when a bunch of other people are playing it. Um, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, there's a few of those, right? Like the Jitaro is kind of like that too. Um, that pre-drop vocal, which I'm still unsure of what it says. I have no idea. No it's just clue. like a thing that goes like daddy daddy yeah, <laughs> yeah. but you just hear it like every set even if somebody's just taking it and pasting it into some crap that that they put right. in there that's that's what i'm afraid of is that that we get on the other side of this pandemic and it's shows like, are shows are back and people are still using the same kendrick lamar mad city pre-drop you know <laughs> what i mean like like i just i hope I hope that people take advantage of this opportunity to like, you know, try to figure out like what they want to do and what they want to say. And um, I'd be so impressed, man, if like we got to the other side of this and it's I just know. like, it's just where it left off, just continue. <laughs> <laughs> people have like just learned nothing. They're just like, oh, it's back to, back to business. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I think like I recently like, um, like I said before, I was like trying to like really kind of uh, repair my relationship with music and making music in general. And one of the things that really helped me was finding uh, like 
like people on SoundCloud that like that are clearly just having fun with this shit you know like their mix downs aren't perfect their vocal processing isn't perfect they don't care it's just a vibe and they're having fun with like one of their friends just collabing or whatever and um so i started listening to a lot of these artists under like uh six impala um maybe you've heard some of their stuff but um shit where was i going with this oh yeah so like there's this whole generation of like younger producers that did not go into EDM and they're more into like, they're more into like hyper pop kind of shit, you know, like hundred gex, that kind of mm -hmm. lane. And, and they're creatively in the amount of time, in the same amount of time, they have traversed so much ground where they've like, they've incorporated like, like post pop punk they've incorporated like all the um like the cashmere cat like old school kind of rusty high vocal kind of vibes like they've that that their lane of music has gotten so crazy and tra has traversed so much ground and in bass music in that same amount of time people are still stuck on the holding one note for for the whole drop <laughs> kind of like formula and it's like there's been a whole year to like traverse space creatively to come up with, you know, new ideas and riff off of each other or whatever. And I see, I see these young, these young producers, like these young kids, like, you know, they're, like I said, they're, their mixdowns won't be perfect or whatever, but like they are just firing off new ideas like crazy. And it's just so fun to listen to. Um, I wish EDM could get <clears throat> some of that, you know? Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I think um, what happens, right, is like if somebody's having tons of fun making the music that they're making, it almost like comes through in the music. Like you can just hear the fun in it, right? Yeah. And and I think the opposite is also true. Like if somebody is um, working to death an EDM drop that they're just like fucking you know, like you said before, just sitting there muscling out like every bit of stereo image they can and just like right. putting ton like overworking it really. Um, fear, that, that fear and love. You, you hear people talk about like every decision is like uh, behind every decision is either fear or love. Like you can hear it when it's love and you can hear when it's fear too. Like, like I feel like a lot of that, a lot of that like vanilla kind of generic sounding stuff, it's like, like there's a vulnerability that comes with putting out something that's personal and like uniquely your perspective. And and if you're afraid of that vulnerability, then I, I think, I think you can hear it. Mm, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, man. Some good, some good points for sure. Yeah. You have a cool way of looking at music. I think it's like a little more romantic than the way I look at it. I look at the whole production process as like more of a technical thing, I guess. For sure. But yeah, I always I like the that kind of Actually, opinion as well. What um <clears throat> for me, I'm like I assume most people are like this, but maybe it's maybe it's not the case. Cause I know you're like definitely like a technician. Um but do you um do you very carefully like compartmentalize like creative versus um you know technical? or, or yeah. do, you, do you go back and forth like it's like it's nothing or do you keep them separated like it's two different parts of your brains that shouldn't be slowing each other down 
I I try to compartmentalize it if I can. I mean, it's like that old saying, or maybe it's not an old saying. It's like <laughs> it was in that Dennis DeSantis book, um, uh, "Write drunk, edit sober," or whatever. Okay, yeah, right. Um, and I've added a third bit onto that. It's a uh, "Write drunk, edit sober, mix on mushrooms." Ah, okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that's a good good one I picked up off a friend because uh, as soon as you're on mushrooms, like even if it's a light dose, it's just very obvious like what's sort of like stabbing you in the face and you're like, oh, right. that's fucked. Like, i got to get yeah. rid of that. <laughs> and, uh, that makes perfect sense actually. I'm definitely going to try that. Yeah, yeah. So um, so like in that way I try to sort of, not that I, I actually gave up drinking this year but like, oh, last year. But um, I guess like what I take from that is – the writing component should just be this like flowy, like try not to stop too much, like try and just get it out, you know, like try and I try to like just keep moving forward in the writing process. Like I, I try not to right. be like, oh, this sound isn't quite right or this snare is not the right snare or whatever. Like I just try and like keep moving forward without getting stuck on shit too much. Um, and the point of my writing sessions is to just get as much, like I try to go for quantity, right? Like just as much shit as I can, like as many ideas as possible, like the shotgun approach sort of, and yeah, you know, something's bound to hit at some point. And then when I go into the technical mindset of like, you know, come back to that tune and whatever a month later, maybe, or, um, a week later or whatever it is and be like, all right, I, I gotta like finish this or fix it up. Then I'll start going like, all right this is a bunch of bullshit that sucks and like I have to delete all this and like you know, now I'll spend like an hour making a snare and right. 20 minutes making another kick drum right. or something like that. And okay, so you do, you do compartmentalize pretty good. I, I do, yeah. Um, but when I go into that technical state, um, I think I often will, I, so I have an easier time being in the creative state and not going technical, but I have a hard time being in the technical state and not going creative. Oh, really? Yeah, like when I'm sitting there making like a sound or whatever, it's like hard for me to... second guess your melody? Sorry, say that again? Like you would second guess your melody or something? like. No, but like um, I guess what usually happens is if I'm like, oh, I got to make a new snare, right? Like I'll start making it and then I'll like accidentally tweak one knob wrong and it'll make like another sound and I'll be like, oh, wait, like that would be sick. Yeah, and, like, yeah. Then I'll start doing some other shit. For sure, I could see that. Yeah, so my technical sessions very often devolve into like some just experimental sound design or something mm -hmm. um how about yeah. you do you do you compartmentalize yeah i them? yeah i keep them uh crazy uh separate but i feel like my my strength is more like writing centric um whereas like you're you're definitely like one of like the top tier like technicians so i didn't know if maybe um it was easy for you to kind of alternate you know yeah well one one thing i do now to keep my technical sessions more technical um and try not to get into those sound design sessions is at the end of uh like when i think the track is essentially done i stem it yeah i started um, doing that recently too that's a game changer it is yeah for multiple reasons i think one of the main reasons is like um you can really control the tails of things oh you yeah. know like on the one when like a kick comes back in or something like that you can just like chop all the reverb tails and then all of a sudden like that kick is way yeah. cleaner um, and you can just like really control like resonances of things. Everything becomes like exact. You don't have yeah. like synthesizers that are like doing weird phase shit being different every time and 
all sorts of stuff. Like I feel like even if you put re-triggering on, on a lot of synths, they're still just like the same. Like, they're not the same like every time there's something yeah. in the effects chain like a chorus or like a flange or some weird effect right. that's going to be different on every revolution. And, right. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, in that sense, I feel like stemming it helps me in that way too, but it also just helps me not get bogged down into that being sound design-y thing. But also, like, I can't help it. Like, I'll I'll have all my shit in stems, and I'll be like, "What if it sounds? What would it sound like if I yeah. stretch this thing?" And <laughs> yeah, I definitely do that too. But I mean, sometimes it, that's it works. It's cool. <clears throat> yeah, I find my my problem um, often is that I like overwork things. Yeah, like I'll I'll have like uh, the original render or whatever that sounds like pretty good. Then I'll be like, oh, but I could like widen this more. I could do like all this shit more. And then I'll compare it back to the original render and be like, oh, no, man, like the original one was like, you know, yeah. had something about it that was so much like just cleaner and nicer. For sure. And that's a frustrating thing that I've been trying to get better at um, for 10 years and <laughs> still feel yeah. like I haven't gotten better at. <clears throat> well, it's like the, the goalposts will always be moving because the upcoming class of of young you know 16 year old kids are always going to be like leveling up you know so it's right uh, but it's also i think um got to do with that confidence shit again that i was talking about before you know like sometimes it's hard to have the confidence that your first go at something was fine you know so it's it's sure. almost like uh i feel like anyway i have to sort of um you know, expend all of my options to make sure that it was. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like chess, right? It's like I have to do a shitload of calculation to be sure that I'm confident that my move is okay. Um, rather than just calculate one move and be like, I'm sure that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I, to me, a lot of that isn't knowing yourself as well. Like I know myself well enough to know that if I think I nailed a mix down, it's fucked up. Like it's not, it's not good. If I <laughs> like, if I hate it, if I hate it, cause I can't get something like just right. I'm getting it as close as I physically can, but I just can't get it. Then that's when I know like, this is probably good. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, cause I'm like, true. I'm attuned to like a, a smaller decimal level of detail or whatever. Versus if I'm just like, nailed it first try i'm the shit uh <laughs> no nah, never i've never had that like work mm. but admittedly i'm not like the the most like technically inclined producer so yeah interesting yeah i kind of have the same thing as well like i know a mix down is finished when i'm tweaking things by like 0.3 db and like yeah you know, turning a vocal up and down by like a couple of you know 0.1 db or something like at that point i'm like all right i can stop like i'm just yeah. <laughs> fucking with things now for the sake of it for sure. Cool, man. Well, I woke up just before this, which was midday for me, and I still haven't eaten, and it's 2 p.m. now, so I should probably go eat. Cool. Yeah, do your thing, man. Um, yeah, it's cool. It's cool to talk to you. I've, like, known, like, of you for a long time, so it's cool to, uh, you know, finally kick it. Yeah, likewise, man. It's, um, it's always good as well. I think like the podcast, I think is such a cool thing to have during this time as well because I get to just like chat to people and shit. It's great. For sure. Um, I also, I have this feeling that like the reason podcasts are so popular these days is because people often won't like uh, put their phones down for two hours like we just did and have a conversation, right? And it's almost like people are so... Uh, 
so impressed by that happening that they're like, whoa, like, look at, look at this going on. Like I've never seen, like, I feel like it's just a thing that, you know, that's insane. That's insane. If that's, if that's real, (laughs) I honestly think that's why podcasts are that big these days is because people just aren't chatting this way anymore. I think it's like commutes and stuff. Like I, but where where live, are people commuting these days? And people are still going to work. People people that live in New York are still taking the train. You know, like that's like my my wife Kara. She's like she's hooked on podcasts now, and it's because she we used to live in New York, and she, and that's just she just it brings her back to like taking the train in New York and like going to school. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Nice. Do you listen to other podcasts? Uh, I listen to. Yeah, there's like one or two that I listen to, but nothing that's like an hour long thing. Like I'll listen to like The Economist has like a good kind of like global recap. That's like usually around 20 minutes. I'll listen to that like while I eat breakfast or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but nothing, nothing that's just like, you know, like serial or This American Life. That's just like a nice story. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm much more interested in like stuff that I can learn from, especially 2020. Like everybody's on their like self-help shit, you know? (laughs) Um, so I'm trying to learn stuff. I do, I do actually listen to like, uh, books on, book on tape. Um, so that's kind of the same, I guess. But again, I'm still trying to find things that I, uh, can learn from. Hmm. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I, I listen to a lot of Sam Harris, and I also listen to a lot of uh, this podcast called Reply All, which is really cool. It's just basically okay. like all things internet. Okay. That's pretty, pretty relevant to my interests, given I spend like 90% of my day on the internet. For sure. Um, but yeah, man. Yeah, it was awesome uh, chatting to you finally. And uh, yeah, I'm interested to see where this chess game goes. It's only moved 10, but it's like a pretty interesting position. I've actually just like had it next to the Zoom call this whole time. I'm just sort of like looking at it. I'm I'm actually like pretty, I've been disappointed with my like memory. Because like we'll, we'll get to these positions where I'm like, we've been here two or three times before. Like not exactly, but like a similar, and I'm like, what went wrong or what went right last time and like i don't have that kind of command where i like just remember you well that's why like playing the same openings over and over over again is like really good because like i mean i haven't seen this exact position before but like let's see move uh, like you knew you knew i was going to trade dark bishops like early on yeah like if you go back to move eight uh at the end of move eight I was like, I've seen this position like a hundred times. Yeah. See, so that to me or to like to Gotham chess, whatever his name is, like he's like, then you have a huge advantage. Um, Even even if your position is worse, you've seen it, you know, that many Mm. more times. Um, So that's actually like, I don't know. I I had not thought of it that way. Um, Mm. And that is pretty cool. Yeah. I keep wanting to play... Bishop e6 or rook d8. But I don't know if either of those are good. Should probably develop maybe something. I don't want to go knight f to d7 because then that'll block my bishop. But I also want to play f5 at some point. So it's like 
don't know. And I never like playing the. So actually, sometimes what I'll do is I'll play knight to h5 with the idea of playing f5 and f4 um, to disconnect that dark square bishop and the queen. Right. And that can work pretty well sometimes, but um, obviously that's not going to happen this game. But yeah, I don't know. So yeah, it's an interesting position. I'll think about it for a bit do you, longer. Do you find that you're, like when you intuitively try to guess like who who is winning at a given point in time, do you feel like you <clears> usually have an accurate sense of that? Or do you like look back at analysis and you're like, oh shit, like I like I won this like 10 moves ago or, or you know what I mean? Yeah, so there was actually a notes, um, there's a notes section. I don't know if it's on the mobile app. But yeah, yeah, it is on the mobile app. Um, so in the notes section, I usually write down like my thoughts at each point uh -huh. of the game. Right. So I'll be like, move 10, I made this move, unsure if that was like correct and, you know, was also uh... thinking about this move and that move and like I'll just write shit down and then at the end when I'm doing analysis, I'll like check it and like cross-reference with my notes to see if... Um, Right. What I was thinking was like along the lines of the right thing. And like often it's just not even close. It's like, oh no, <laughs> I was just supposed to push this like pawn or something. Yeah. 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 And then like it's funny though, because once the computer shows me these moves, like I was supposed to push that pawn, all of a sudden I'm like, fucking this position looks so good. Like, how did I not like play right. that? Right. Yeah. It's we, always actually we were talking about this the other day, like, or we kind of touched on it. Like I like some days all that shit is obvious to you as well mm. and and a how much of your life does like could be improved by being able to you know achieve that consistently um but also how do you how do you do that so there's there's a book that i started listening to it's like what's it called it's by it's 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 written by the guy who um like you know finding bobby fisher that movie yeah um that movie was actually about a little kid uh named uh, i want to say his name is tom waitskin um anyway this the 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 movie was actually josh waitskin the, the movie was actually about um that kid's life and and so he was like a chess child prodigy whatever he dealt with a lot of you know, um, not necessarily like improving to be good, but improving from good to like master level shit, you know, just mentally and chess consistency and all that. And then after chess, he went on to master, um, um, what's it called? Like Szechuan push hands. It's like, um, it's like a martial art, you know, uh, and he went to become a world champion in that. And he kind of, he kind of breaks down how to, learn and like achieve like you know flow state kind of shit by drawing the parallels between mastering the two of those um hmm. it's kind of interesting what's the book called um let's see gosh it's something like how to learn <laughs> yeah the nice. art of learning the art of learning by josh someone wait skin Josh Waitskin. Cool. I'll check it out. Yeah, I've been listening to a lot of audio books lately too. Mm -hmm. Been just yeah. like for a lot of that because I don't like leave the house a ton anymore except for like to go mountain biking or whatever. But um, 
yeah, mainly of just been like walking around the house, like cleaning my house, listening to audio books and stuff. I like cranked out a seven hour audio book in the last like two days. Yeah. They're, they're these, awesome, man. I, I yeah. got into them a couple of years ago or I'm going to let you go. I know you're hungry, but no, no, um, we, can, we can keep chatting for a sec. I got into them like, um, uh, a few years ago. Like I have this like eye disorder, I guess, like my, my eyes don't, produce like the oil component of tears very well so my eyes get really dry and irritated and I can like you know I get like scratches on them and shit so um that coupled with like the lifestyle of like staring at a computer screen all the time flying not not sleeping at all drinking too much um just it just got really bad and honestly like right now like I can only comfortably have my eyes open like like six hours a day um wow so you, like use visine or something like that too yeah i did that until doctors are like you're gonna get cancer now like i've cycle on and off like steroids and all this other shit uh um, that's insane yeah it's not good it's 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 why my like production uh output slowed down a lot also just because some days i can't like i just can't be staring at a screen um but so like reading books when I take time away from a computer was just like not an option. You know what I mean? Like it got to a point where like, if my eyes don't need to be open, like I, they're closed and I have like a, like a blindfold and shit. Like, especially like if I'm touring, like, like in Australia or something, like I'm literally like my shit's just covered. Cause those, those flights will fuck me up. But that's why I got into audiobooks Cause I was just sitting there with my eyes closed. Like what the fuck am I supposed to do with my time right now? Um, so I just started, you know, listening to books and, uh, yeah, they're awesome. Yeah. Damn. Well, sorry to hear. Is that like just a thing you were born with or is it something that developed over time for some reason? Or? It's, I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's something that I was born with, but just the lifestyle of, of being a touring musician, <laughs> like just exacerbated the, the situation. <laughs> um, and but if like it's otherwise, like, your eye, like your vision is still fine and whatnot. It's just yeah, no, my, it it doesn't affect my vision. It's just like, like in high school, my eyes would always be red, and kids were like, "Oh, he smokes weed, huh? That's cool, whatever," <laughs> you know. And I never thought anything of it. I was just like, "Yeah, my eyes are my eyes always get red," um, but then it it just it got to a point where like, like I I literally couldn't I couldn't have my eyes open like like you know for more than like a couple hours you know like it's it's gotten a little better since then but basically the, the glands like if they don't work if they don't function properly for long enough they atrophy and you never get that functionality back so now i've like lost some of that and so i have to like i just have to like ration like studio time and stuff like that um so it's kind of annoying damn that's crazy well i mean i guess at least like a positive from that is that you know you have a limited amount of time at the computer that you can be working so it kind of gives you deadlines which is sort of healthy i think sure because I, I feel like if you like for instance i have no deadlines right and quite often i'll just sit here all day just looking at fucking facebook or like you know some dumb shit like discord or like right. just doing like no work but i feel like when i do have those deadlines like we we're talking about before with the shows on the weekends or whatever I'm way more productive because I'm like, all right, I only have a limited amount of time that I have to be able to do stuff. So I better like get it done. For sure. 
Yeah. So in that sense, like having a deadline like that, um, that's, you know, imposed, even though it sucks to have this condition, obviously, is like maybe, you know, some positive to get out of it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but also at the same time, it's like, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe you're like a lot more disciplined than me and you might, without this condition, just work for 12 hours a day or something. Yeah, I'm definitely not. Like I still, like it's a cumulative thing, kind of like sleep. You know, whereas if I, I can push it today and work, you know, 20 hours, but then like I won't, I won't be able to go out on the weekend and look normal. Like people will be like, are you okay? Like you look like a zombie, you know, um, just from like not sleeping or because your eyes, no, will no, my eyes will look like some shit out of like, like 28 days later or something. Oh, fuck. That's crazy. Damn. What's the condition called? Uh, it's called blepharitis. Damn. It's like blepharitis. I've never even heard of this. Oh, yeah. Inflammation of the eyelids, in which they become irritated, red, and blah, blah, blah. Damn. Crazy, man. Well, that sucks. Yeah. Sorry to hear. It's all good. Everybody's got something. Yeah, it's true. Um, cool, man. Well, sucks to leave this on a low note, but. Uh... Oh, no. It's all good. But let's, let's definitely. Um... I don't know. Like I enjoyed this. Like I'd, I'd definitely be down to like, uh, you know, kick it again. I th I think it would be fun to play one of these games while like uh, you know on Zoom or something like that. Not necessarily just to like win or lose, but to like to talk about like oh, okay, right now I'm I'm trying to go for this. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Or, and yeah, this like is, just this trade is how ideas. You... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Dude, yeah, I'd be super down for that. Um, yeah, let's let's organize a time to do that. Hey, thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. These episodes are edited and uploaded by Robert Fumo. You can also support the show, get early access to episodes, and hear bonus content by going to patreon.com forward slash Mr. Bill's Tunes and becoming a patron. Uh, please rate and review on iTunes unless you're going to be a little shit about it. And all the links to my various platforms are at mrbillstunes.com. Thank you. I'm a